Hi, everybody. Carla here, and welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. Let's finish up today with Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. Thanks again for tuning in. Winter. My daddy's face is a study. Winter moves into it and presides there. His eyes become a cliff of snow threatening to avalanche. His eyebrows bend like black limbs of leafless trees. His skin takes on the pale, cheerless yellow of winter sun. For a jaw, he has the edges of a snowbound field dotted with stubble. His high forehead is the frozen sweep of the eerie, hiding currents of gelid thoughts that eddy in the darkness. Wolf killer turned hawk fighter. He worked night and day to keep one from the door and the other from under the window sills. A Vulcan guarding the flames. He gives us instructions about which doors to keep closed or open for proper distribution of heat, lays kindling by, discusses qualities of coal, and teaches us how to rake feed, and bank the fire, and he will not unrazor his lips until spring. Winter tightened our heads with a band of cold and melted our eyes. We put pepper in the feet of our stockings, Vaseline on our faces, and stared through dark icebox mornings at four stewed prunes, slippery lumps of oatmeal, and cocoa with a roof of skin. But mostly we waited for spring, when there could be gardens, by the time this winter had stiffened itself into a hateful knot that nothing could loosen, something did loosen it, or rather someone. A someone who splintered the knot into silver threads that tangled us, netted us, made us long for the dull chafe of the previous boredom. This disruptor of seasons was a new girl in school named Maureen Peel, a high yellow dream child with long brown hair braided into two lynch ropes that hung down her back. She was rich, and, at least by our standards, as rich as the richest of the white girls, swaddled in comfort and care. The quality of her clothes threatened to derange Frida and me. Patent leather shoes with buckles, a cheaper version of which we got only at Easter, and which had disintegrated by the end of May. Fluffy sweaters the color of lemon drops tucked into skirts with pleats so orderly they astounded us. Brightly colored knee socks with white borders, a brown velvet coat trimmed in white rabbit fur, and a matching muff. There was a hint of spring in her slow green eye, something summery in her complexion, and a rich autumn ripeness in her walk. She enchanted the entire school. When teachers called on her, they smiled encouragingly. Black boys didn't trip her in the halls. White boys didn't stone her. White girls didn't suck their teeth when she was assigned to be their work partners. Black girls stepped aside when she wanted to use the sink in the girls' toilet, and their eyes genuflected under sliding lids. She never had to search for anybody to eat within the cafeteria. They flocked to the table of her choice, where she opened fastidious lunches, shaming our jelly-stained bread with egg salad sandwiches cut into four dainty squares, pink frosted cupcakes, stocks of celery and carrots, proud dark apples. She even bought and liked white milk. Frida and I were bemused, irritated, and fascinated by her. We looked hard for flaws to restore our equilibrium, but had to be content at first with uglying up her name, changing Maureen Peel to Meringue Pie. Later, a minor epiphany was ours when we discovered that she had a dog tooth. A charming one, to be sure, but a dog tooth nonetheless. 
And when we found out that she had been born with six fingers on each hand and that there was a little bump where each extra one had been removed, we smiled. They were small triumphs, but we took what we could get, snickering behind her back and calling her six-fingered dog tooth meringue pie. But we had to do it alone, for none of the other girls would cooperate with our hostility. They adored her. When she was assigned a locker next to mine, I could indulge my jealousy four times a day. My sister and I had suspected that we were secretly prepared to be her friend if she would let us, but I knew it would be a dangerous friendship, for when my eye traced the white border patterns of those Kelly green knee socks and felt the pull and slack of my own brown stockings, I wanted to kick her. And when I thought of the unearned haughtiness in her eyes, I plotted accidental slammings of locker doors on her hand. As locker friends, however, we got to know each other a little, and I was even able to hold a sensible conversation with her without visualizing her fall off a cliff or giggling my way into what I thought was a clever insult. One day, while I waited at the locker for Frida, she joined me. Hi. Hi. Waiting for your sister? Uh-huh. Which way do you go home? Down 21st Street to Broadway. Why don't you go down 22nd Street? Because I live on 21st Street. Oh, I can walk that way, I guess. Partly anyways. Free country. Frida came toward us, her brown stockings, straining at the knees because she had tucked the toe under to hide a hole in the foot. Maureen's going to walk part way with us. Frida and I exchanged glances, her eyes begging my restraint, mine promising nothing. It was a false spring day, which, like Maureen, had pierced the shell of a deadening winter. There were puddles, mud, and an inviting warmth that deluded us. The kind of day on which we draped our coats over our heads, let our galosh left our galoshes at school, and came down with croup the following day. We always responded to the slightest change in weather, the most minute shifts in time of day. Long before seeds were stirring, Frida and I were scruffing and poking at the earth, swallowing air, drinking rain. As we emerged from the school with Maureen, we began to molt immediately. We put our headscarves in our coat pockets and our coats on our heads. I was wondering how to maneuver Maureen's fur muff into a gutter when a commotion in the playground distracted us. A group of boys was circling and holding at bay a victim, Piccola Breedlove. Bay Boy, Woodrow Kane, Buddy Wilson, Junie Bug. Like a necklace of semi-precious stones, they surrounded her, heady with the smell of their own musk, Thrilled by the easy power of a majority, they gaily harassed her. Black emo, black emo, yet yep, slepnik, black emo, black emo. They had extemporized a verse made up of two insults about matters over which the victim had no control, the color of her skin and speculations on the sleeping habits, sleeping habits of an adult, wildly fitting in its incoherence. That they themselves were black or that their own father had similarly relaxed habits was irrelevant. It was their contempt for their own blackness that gave the first insult. Its teeth, they seemed to have taken all of their smoothly cultivated ignorance, their exquisitely learned self-hatred, their elaborately designed hopelessness and sucked it all up into a fiery cone of scorn that had burned for ages in the hollows of their minds cooled and spilled over 
the lips of outrage consuming whatever was in its path. They danced a macabre ballet around the victim, whom, for her own sake, they were prepared to sacrifice to the flaming pit. Black emo, black emo, your daddy sleeps naked. Piccola edged around the circle, crying. She had dropped her notebook and covered her eyes with her hands. We watched, afraid they might take notice of us and turn their energies our way. Then Frida, with set lips and mama's eyes, snatched her coat from her head and threw it on the ground. She ran toward them and brought her books down. On Woodrow Kane's head, the circle broke. Woodrow Kane grabbed his head. Hey, girl, you cut that out, you hear? I had never heard Frida's voice so loud and clear. Maybe because Frida was taller than he was. Maybe because he saw her eyes. Maybe because he had lost interest in the game. Or maybe because he had a crush on Frida. In any case, Woodrow looked frightened just long enough to give her more courage. Leave her alone or I'm going to tell, tell everybody what you did. Woodrow did not answer. He just walled his eyes. Bayboy piped up. Go on, gal. Ain't nobody bothering you. You shut up, Bullethead. I have found my tongue. Who you calling Bullethead? I'm calling you Bullethead, Bullethead. Frida took Piccola's hand. Come on, you want a fat lip? Bayboy drew back his fist at me. Yeah, give me one of yours. You gonna get one? Maureen appeared at my elbow, and the boy seemed reluctant to continue under her springtime eye so wide with interest. They buckled in confusion, not willing to beat up three girls under her watchful gaze. So they listened to a budding male instinct that told them to pretend we were unworthy of their attention. Come on, man. Yeah, come on. We ain't got time to fool with them. Grumbling a few disinterested epithets, they moved away. I picked up Piccola's notebook and Frida's coat, and the four of us left the playground. Oh, bullethead. He's always picking on girls. Frida agreed with me. Miss Forrester said he was incorrigible. Really, I didn't know what that meant, but it had enough of a doom sound in it to be true of Bayboy. While Frida and I clucked on about the near fight, Maureen suddenly animated, put her velvet-sleeved arm through Piccola's and began to behave as though they were the closest of friends. I just moved here. My name is Maureen Peel. What's yours? Piccola? Piccola? Wasn't that the name of the girl in Imitation of Life? I don't know. What is that? The picture show, you know, where this mulatto girl hates her mother because she is black and ugly, but then cries at the funeral. It was real sad. Everybody cries in it. Claudette Colbert, too. Oh, Piccola's voice was no more than a sigh. Anyway, her name was Piccola, too. She was so pretty. When it comes back, I'm going to see it again. My mother has seen it four times. Frida and I walked behind them, surprised at Maureen's friendliness to Piccola, but pleased. Maybe she wasn't so bad after all. Frida had put her coat back on her head, and the two of us, so draped, trotted along, enjoying the warm breeze and Frida's heroics. You're in my gym class, aren't you? Maureen asked Piccola. Yes, Miss Erkmeister's legs sure are bow. I bet she thinks they're cute. How come she gets to wear real shorts and we have to wear those old bloomers? I want to die every time I put them on. Piccola smiled but did not look at Maureen. Hey, Maureen stopped short. 
There is an ice, Elise. Want some ice cream? I have money. She unzipped a hidden pocket in her muff and pulled out a multi-folded dollar bill. I forgave her those knee socks. My uncle sued Isilis, Maureen said to the three of us. He sued the Isilis in Akron. They said he was disorderly and that was why they wouldn't serve him. But a friend of his, a policeman, came in and bared the witness, so the suit went through. What's a suit? It's when you can beat them up if you want to and won't nobody do nothing. Our family does it all the time. We believe in suits. At the entrance to Isilis, Maureen turned to Frida and me, asking, You all going to buy some ice cream? We looked at each other. No, Frida said. Maureen disappeared into the store with Piccola. Frida looked placidly down the street. I opened my mouth but quickly closed it. It was extremely important that the world not know that I fully expected Maureen to buy us ice cream, and for the past 120 seconds I had been selecting the flavor that I had begun to like, Maureen, and that neither of us had a penny. We supposed Maureen was being nice to Piccola because of the boys, and were embarrassed to be caught, even by each other, thinking that she would treat us or that we deserved it as much as Piccola did. The girls came out. Pardon me. The girls came out. Piccola with two dips of orange pineapple, Maureen with black raspberry. You should have got some, she said. They had all kinds. Don't eat down to the tip of the cone, she advised Piccola. Why? Because there's a fly in there. How do you know? Oh, not really. A girl told me she found one in the bottom of hers once, and ever since she throws that part away. Oh, we passed the Dreamland Theater, and Betty Grable smiled down at us. Don't you just love her? Maureen asked. Uh-huh, said Piccola. I differed. Hetty Lamar is better. Maureen agreed. Oh, yes, my mother told me that a girl named Audrey, who went to the beauty parlor where we lived, and asked the lady to fix her hair just like Hetty Lamar's. And the lady said, yeah, when you grow some hair like Hetty Lamar's. She laughed long and sweet. Sounds crazy, said Frida. She sure is. Do you know she doesn't even menstruate yet? And she's 16. Do you yet? Yes, Piccola glanced at us. So do I. Maureen made no attempt to disguise her pride. Two months ago, I started... My my girlfriend in Toledo, where we lived before, said when we started, she was scared to death, thought she had killed herself. Do you know what it's for? Piccola asked the question as though hoping to provide the answer herself. For babies. Maureen raised two pencil-stroke eyebrows at the obviousness of the question. Babies need blood when they are inside you, and if you are having a baby, then you don't menstruate. But when you're not having a baby, and then you don't have to save the blood, so it comes out. How do babies get the blood? asked Piccola. Through the like line, you know, where your belly button is. That is where the like line grows from and pumps the blood to the baby. Well, if the belly buttons are to grow like lines to give the baby blood, and only girls have babies, how come boys have belly buttons? Maureen hesitated. I don't know she admitted, but boys have all sorts of things they don't need. Her tinkling laughter was somehow stronger than our nervous ones. She curled her tongue around the edge of her cone, scooping up a dollop of purple that made my eyes water. We were waiting for the stoplight to change. 
Maureen kept scooping the ice cream from around the cone's edge with her tongue. She didn't bite the edge as I would have done. Her tongue circled the cone. Piccola had finished hers. Maureen evidently liked hers to the last. While I was thinking about her ice cream, she must have been thinking about her last remark, for she said to Piccola, Did you ever see a naked man? Piccola blinked, then looked away. No, where would I see a naked man? I don't know. I, I just asked. I wouldn't even look at him, even if I did see him. That's dirty. Who wants to see a naked man? Piccola was agitated. Nobody's father would be naked in front of his own daughter, not unless he was dirty, too. I didn't say father. I just said a naked man. Well, how come you said father? Maureen wanted to know. Who else would she see, dog tooth? I was glad to have a chance to show anger, not only because of the ice cream, but because we had seen our own father naked and didn't care to be reminded of it and feel the shame brought on by the absence of shame. He had been seen walking down the hall from the bathroom into his bedroom and past the open door of our room. We had lain there wide-eyed. He stopped and looked in, trying to see in the dark room whether we really were asleep or was it his imagination that opened eyes were looking at him. Apparently, he convinced himself that we were sleeping. He moved away, confident that his little girls would not lie open-eyed like that, staring, staring. When he had moved on, the dark took only him away, not his nakedness. That stayed in the room with us, friendly-like. I'm not talking to you, said Maureen. Besides, I don't care if she sees her father naked. She can look at him all day if she wants to. Who cares? You do, said Frida. That's all you talk about. It is not. It is so. Boys, babies, and somebody's naked daddy. You must be boy crazy. You better be quiet. Who's going to make me? Frida put her hand on her hip and jutted her face toward Maureen. You already made. Mammy made. You stopped talking about my mama. Well, you stopped talking about my daddy. Who said anything about your old daddy? You did. Well, you started it. I wasn't even talking to you. I was talking to Piccola. Yeah, about seeing her daddy naked. So what if she did see him? Piccola shouted, I never saw my daddy naked, never. You did too, Maureen snapped. Bayboy said so. I did not. You did. I did not. Did your own daddy too. Piccola tucked her head in, a funny, sad, helpless movement, a kind of hunching of the shoulders, pulling in of the neck, as though she wanted to cover her ears. You stop talking about her daddy, I said. What do I care about her old black daddy? asked Maureen. Black? Who are you calling black? You? You think you are cute? I swung at her and missed hitting Piccola in the face. Furious at my clumsiness, I threw my notebook at her, but it caught her in the small of her velvet back, for she had turned and was flying across the street against traffic. Safe on the other side, she screamed at us, I am cute, and you ugly! Black and ugly black emos. I am cute. She ran down the street, the green knee socks making her legs look like wild dandelion stems that had somehow lost their heads. The weight of her remarks stunned us, and it was a second or two before Frida and I collected ourselves enough to shout, Six-finger dog-tooth meringue pie! 
we chanted this most powerful of our arsenal of insults as long as we could see the green stems and rabbit fur. Grown people frowned at the three girls on the curbside, two with their coats draped over their heads, the collars framing the eyebrows like nuns' habits, black garters showing where they bit the tops of brown stockings that barely covered the knees, angry faces knotted like dark cauliflowers. Piccola stood a little apart from us, her eyes hinged in the direction in which Maureen had fled. She seemed to fold into herself like a pleated wing. Her pain agonized me. I wanted to open her up, crisp her edges, ram a stick down that hunched and curving spine, force her to stand erect and spit the misery out of and spit the misery out on the streets. But she held it in where it could lap up into her eyes. Frida snatched her coat from her. Come on, Claudia. Bye, Piccola. We walked quickly at first and then slower, pausing every now and then to fasten garters, uh, tie shoelaces, scratch and examine old scars. We were sinking under the wisdom, accuracy and relevance of Maureen's last words. If she was cute and if anything could be believed, she was. Then we were not. And what did that mean? We were lesser. Nicer, brighter, but still lesser. Dolls we could destroy, but we could not destroy the honey voices of parents and aunts, the obedience in the eyes of our peers, the slippery light in the eyes of our teachers when they encountered the marine peels of the world. What was the secret? What did we lack? Why was it important? And so what? Guileless and without vanity, we were still in love with ourselves then. We felt comfortable in our skins, enjoyed the news that our senses related to us, admired our dirt, cultivated our scars, and could not comprehend this unworthiness. Jealousy we understood and thought natural, a desire to have what somebody else had, but envy was a strange new feeling for us. And all the time we knew that Maureen Peel was not the enemy and not worthy of such intense hatred. The thing to fear was the thing that that made her beautiful and not us. The house was quiet when we opened the door. The acrid smell of simmering turnips filled our cheeks with sour saliva. Mama! There was no answer but a sound of her feet. Mr. Henry shuffled part of the way down the stairs. One thick hairless leg leaned out of his bathrobe. Hello there, Greta Garbo. Hello, Ginger Rogers. We gave him the giggle he was accustomed to. Hello, Mr. Henry. Where's Mama? She went to your grandma's. Left word for you to cut off the turnips and eat some graham crackers till she got back. They in the kitchen. We sat in silence at the kitchen table, crumbling the crackers into anthills. In a little while, Mr. Henry came back down the stairs. Now he had his trousers on under his robe. Say, wouldn't you all like some cream? Oh, yes, sir. Here, here's a quarter. Go over to Isley's and get yourself some cream. You've been good girls, ain't you? His light green words restored color to the day. Yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Henry. Will you tell Mama for us if she comes? Sure, but if she ain't, but she ain't due back for a spell. Coatless, we left the house and had gotten all the way to the corner when Frida said, I don't want to go to Isley's. What? I don't want ice cream. I want potato chips. They got potato chips at Isley's. I know, but why go all that long way? Miss Bertha got potato chips, but I want ice cream. No, you don't, Claudia. I do too. 
Well, you go on to Isley's. I'm going to Miss Bertha's. But you got the corner and I don't want to go all the way up there by myself. Then let's go to Miss Bertha's. You like her candy, don't you? It's always stale and she always runs out of stuff. Today is Friday. She orders fresh on Friday. And then that crazy old soaphead church lives there. So what? We're together. We'll run if she does anything to us. He scares me. Well, I don't want to go up by Isley. Suppose Meringue Pie is hanging around. You want to run into her, Claudia? Come on, Frida. I'll get candy. Miss Bertha had a small candy snuff and tobacco store, one brick room sitting in her front yard. You had to peep in the door, and if she wasn't there, you knocked on the door of her house and back. This day, she was sitting behind the counter, reading a Bible in a tube of sunlight. Frida bought potato chips, and we got three powerhouse bars for ten cents. We had a dime left. We hurried back home to sit under the lilac bushes on the side of the house. We always did our candy dance there so Rosemary could see us and get jealous. The candy dance was a humming, skipping, foot-tapping, eating-smacking combination that overtook us when we had sweets. Creeping between the bushes and the side of the house, we heard voices and laughter. We looked into the living room window, expecting to see Mama. Instead, we saw Mr. Henry and two women. In a playful manner, the way grandmothers do with babies, he was sucking the fingers of one of the women whose laughter filled a tiny place over his head. The other woman was buttoning her coat. We knew immediately who they were, and our flesh crawled. One was China, and the other was called Maginot Line. The back of my neck itched. These were the fancy women of the maroon nail polish that Mama and Big Mama hated. And in our house, China was not too terrible, at least not in our imaginations. She was thin, aging, absent-minded, and unaggressive. But the Maginot Line? That was the one my mother said wouldn't let her eat out of one of her plates. That was the one churchwomen never allowed their eyes to rest on. That was the one who had killed people, set them on fire, poisoned them, cooked them, and lie. Although I thought the Maginot Line's face, hidden under all that fat, was really sweet. I had heard too many black and red words about her, seen too many mouths go triangle at the mention of her name, to dwell on any redeeming features she might have. Showing brown teeth, China seemed to be genuinely enjoying Mr. Henry. The sight of him licking her fingers brought to mind the girly magazines in his room. A cold wind blew somewhere in me, lifting the leaves of terror and obscure longing. I thought I saw a mild lonesomeness cross the face of the Maginot line, but it may have been my own image that I saw in the slow flaring of her nostrils and her eyes that reminded me of waterfalls in movies about Hawaii. The Maginot line yawned and said, Come on, China, we can't hang in here all day. Them people be home soon. She moved toward the door. Frida and I dropped down to the ground, looking wildly into each other's eyes. When the women were some distance away, we went inside. Mr. Henry was in the kitchen opening a bottle of pop. Back already? Yes, sir. Cream all gone? His little teeth looked so kindly and helpless. Was that really our Mr. Henry with China's fingers? We got candy instead. You did, huh? Oh, sugar tooth Greta Garbo. He wiped the bottle, sweat, and turned it up to his lips, a gesture that made me uncomfortable. Who are those women, Mr. Henry? 
He choked on the pop and looked at Frida. What'd you say? Those women, she repeated, who just left. Who are they? Oh, he laughed, the grown-up getting ready to lie laugh. A hee we knew well. Those were some members of my Bible class. We read the scriptures together, and so they came today to read with me. Oh, said Frida, I was looking at his house slippers to keep from seeing those kindly teeth frame a lie. He walked toward the stairs and then turned back to us. Bed, not mention it to your mother. She don't take too much to Bible study and don't like me having visitors, even if they good Christians. No, sir, Mr. Henry, we won't. He rapidly mounted the stairs. Should we? I asked. Tell Mama. Frida sighed. She had not even opened her powerhouse bar or her potato chips, and now she traced the letters on the candy wrappers with her fingers. Suddenly, she lifted her head and began to look at all and began to look all around the kitchen. No, I guess not. No plates are out. Plates? What are you talking about now? No plates are out. The Maginot line didn't eat out of one of Mama's plates. Besides, Mama would just fuss all day if we told her. We sat down and looked at the graham cracker anthills we had made. We better turn off the turnips. They'll burn and Mama will whip us, she said. I know, but if we let them burn, we won't have to eat them. Hey, what a lovely idea, I thought. What you want, a whipping and no turnips or turnips and no whippings? I don't know. Maybe we could burn them just a little so Mama and Daddy can eat them, but we can say we can't. Okay. I made a volcano out of my anthill. Frida, what? What did Woodrow do that you was going to tell? Wet the bed. Mrs. Kane told Mama he won't quit. Oh, nasty. The sky was getting dark. I, I looked out of the window and saw snow falling. I poked my finger down into the mouth of my volcano and it toppled, dispersing the golden grains into swirls. The turnip pot crackled. They come from Mobile, Aiken, from Newport News, from Marietta, from Meridian, and the sound of these places in their mouths makes you think of love. When you ask them where they are from, they tilt their heads and say, Mobile, and you think you've been kissed. They say, Aiken, and you see a white butterfly glance off a fence with a torn wing. They say, Nagadoches, and you want to say, yes, I will. You don't know what these towns are like, but you love what happens to the air when they open their lips and let the names ease out. Meridian, the sound of it opens the windows of a room like the first four notes of a hymn. Few people can say the names of their hometowns with such sly affection, perhaps because they don't have hometowns, just places where they were born. But these girls soak up the juice of their hometowns and it, and it never leaves them. They are thin, brown girls who have, who have looked long at hollyhocks in the backyards of Meridian, Mobile, Aiken, and Baton Rouge. And like hollyhocks, they are narrow, tall, and still. Their roots are deep. Their stalks are firm, and the only top blossom nods in the wind. They have the eyes of people who can tell what time it is by the color of the sky. Such girls live in quiet black neighborhoods where everybody is gainfully employed, where there are porch swings hanging from chains, where the grass is cut with a scythe, where rooster combs and sunflowers grow in their yards, and pots of bleeding heart, ivy, and mother-in-law tongue line the steps of windowsills. 
Such girls have bought watermelon and snap beans from the fruit man's wagon. They have put in the window the cardboard sign that has a pound measure printed on each of three edges, 10 pounds, 25 pounds, 50 pounds, and no ice on the fourth. These particular brown girls from Mobile and Aiken are not like some of their sisters. They are not fretful, nervous, or shrill. They do not have lovely black necks that strength as though against an invisible collar. Their eyes do not bite. These sugar-brown mobile girls move through the streets without a stir. They are as sweet and plain as butter cake. Slim ankles, long, narrow feet. They wash themselves with orange-colored Lifebuoy soap, dust themselves with cashmere bouquet talc, brush their teeth with salt on a piece of rag, soften their skin with Jergens lotion. They smell like wood, newspapers, and vanilla. They straighten their hair with Dixie peach and part it on the side. At night, they curl it in paper from brown bags, tie a print scarf around their heads, and sleep with hands folded across their stomachs. They do not drink, smoke, or swear, and they still cause sex nuki. They sing second soprano in the choir, and although their voices are clear and steady, they are never picked to solo. They are in the second row, white blouses, starched, blue skirts, and almost purple from ironing. They go to land-grant colleges, normal schools, and learn how to do the white man's work with refinement, home economics to prepare his food, teacher education to instruct black children in obedience, music to soothe the weary master and entertain his blunted soul. Here they learn the rest of the lesson begun in those soft houses with porch swings and pots of bleeding heart, how to behave the careful development of thrift, patience, and high morals and good manners. In short, how to get rid of the funkiness, the the, the dreadful funkiness of passion, the funkiness of nature, the, the funkiness of the wide range of human emotions. Wherever it erupts, this funk, they wipe it away. Where it crusts, they dissolve it. Wherever it drips, flowers, or clings, they find it and fight it until it dies. They fight this battle all the way to the grave. The laugh that is too little, that the laugh that is a little too loud, the enunciation a little too round, the gesture a little too generous. They hold their behind in for fear of sway, too free. When they wear lipstick, they never cover the entire mouth for fear of the lip too thick, and they worry, worry, worry about the edges of their hair. They never seem to have boyfriends, but they always marry. Certain men watch them without seeming to, and know that if such a girl is in his house, he will sleep on sheets boiled white, hung out to dry on juniper bushes, and pressed flat with heavy iron. They will be pretty paper flowers decorating the picture of his mother, a large Bible in the front room. They feel secure. They know their work clothes will be mended, washed, and ironed on Monday, that their Sunday skirts will billow on the hangers from the door jam, stiffly starched and white. They look at their hands and know what she will do with biscuit dough. They smell the coffee and the fried ham, see the white smoky grits with a dollop of butter on top. Her hips assure them that she will bear children easily and painlessly, and they are right. What they do not know is that this plain brown girl will build her nest stick by stick, make it her own invaluable world, and stand guard over its every plant, weed, and doily, even against him. In silence will she return to the lamp, 
and silent, she will return the lamp to where she put it in the first place, remove the dishes from the table as soon as the last bite is taken, wipe the doorknob after a greasy hand has touched it. A sidelong look will be enough to tell him to smoke on the back porch. Children will cease instantly, will sense instantly that they cannot come into her yard to retrieve a ball. But the men do not know these things, nor do they know that she will give them her body sparingly and partially. He must enter her surreptitiously, lifting the hem of her nightgown only to her navel. He must rest his weight on his elbows when they make love, ostensibly to avoid hurting her breasts, but actually to keep her from having to touch or to feel too much of him. While he moves beside her, she will wonder why they didn't put the necessary but private parts in the body in some more convenient place, like the armpit, for example, or the palm of the hand, some place one could get to easily and quickly without undressing. She stiffens when she feels one of her paper curlers coming undone from this activity of love, imprints in her mind which one it is, which one that's coming loose, so she can quickly secure it once he is through. She hopes he will not sweat, the damp may get to her hair, and that she will remain dry between her legs. She hates the glucking sound they make when she is moist. When she senses some spasm about to grip him, she will make rapid movements with her hips, press her fingernails into his back, suck in her breath, and pretend she is having an orgasm. This might, she might wonder again for the 600th time, what it would be like to have that feeling while her husband's penis is inside her. The closest thing to it was the time she was walking down the street to her and her napkin flipped free of her sanitary belt. It moved gently between her legs as she walked, gently, ever so gently, and then a slight and distinctly delicious sensation collected in her crotch. As she, as the delight grew, she had to stop in the street, hold her thighs together to contain it, that must be what it's like, she thinks, but it never happens while he is inside her. When he withdraws, she pulls her nightgown down, slips out of the bed and into the bathroom with relief. Occasionally, some living thing will engage her affections, a cat perhaps, who will love her order, precision and constancy, who will be as clean and quiet as she is. The cat will settle quietly on a windowsill and caress her with his eyes. She can hold him in her arms, letting his back paw struggle for footing on her breast and his forepaws cling to her shoulder. She can rub the smooth fur and feel the unresisting flesh underneath. At her gentlest touch, he will preen, stretch, and open his mouth, and she will accept the strangely pleasant sensation that comes when he rides beneath her, beneath her hand, and flattens his eyes with a surfeit and sensual delight. When he stands cooking, when she stands cooking at the table, he will circle about her shanks and the trill of his fur spirals up her legs to her thighs to make her fingers tremble a little in the pie dough. Or as she sits reading the uplifting thoughts in the Liberty magazine, the cat will jump into her lap. She will fondle that soft hill of hair and let the warmth of the animal's body seep over and into the deeply private areas of her lap. Sometimes the magazine drops and she opens her legs just a little and the two of them will be still together, perhaps shifting a little together, sleeping a little together, until four o'clock when the intruder comes home from work vaguely anxious about what's for dinner. The cat will always know that he is first in her affections, even after she bears a child, for she does bear a child easily and painlessly, but only one 
a son named Junior. One such girl from Mobile or Meridian or Aiken who did not sweat in her armpits nor between her thighs, who smelled of wood and vanilla, who had made souffles in the home economics department, moved with her husband, Lewis, to Lorraine, Ohio. Her name was Geraldine. There she built her nest, iron shirts, potted bleeding hearts, played with her cat, and birthed Lewis Jr., Geraldine did not allow her baby, Junior, to cry. As long as his needs were physical, she could meet them, comfort and satiety. He was always brushed, bathed, oiled, and shod. Geraldine did not talk to him, coo to him, or indulge him in kissing bouts, but she saw that every other desire was fulfilled. It was not long before the child discovered the difference in his mother's behavior to himself and the cat. As he grew older, he learned how to direct his hatred of his mother to the cat and spent some happy moments watching it suffer. The cat survived because Geraldine was seldom away from home and could effectively sue the animal when Junior abused him. Geraldine, Lewis, Junior, and the cat lived next door to the playground of Washington Irving School. Junior considered the playground his own, and the school children coveted his freedom to sleep late, go home for lunch, and dominate the playground after school. He hated to see the swings, slides, monkey bars, the seesaws empty, and tried to get kids to stick around as long as possible. White kids, his mother did not like him to play with niggers. She had explained to him the difference between colored people and niggers. They were easily identifiable. Colored people were neat and quiet. Niggers were dirty and loud. She belonged to the former group. He wore white shirts and blue trousers. His hair was cut as close as his scalp was cut as close to his scalp as possible to avoid any suggestion of wool. The part was etched into his hair by the barber. In winter, his mother put Jurgen's lotion on his face to keep the skin from becoming ashen. Even though he was light-skinned, it was possible to ash. The line between colored and nigger was not always clear. Subtle and telltale signs threatened to erode it, and he and the watch had to be constant. Junior used to long to play with the black boys more than anything in the world. He wanted to play king of the mountain and have them push him down the mound of dirt and roll him over. He wanted to feel their hardness pressing on him, smell their wild blackness and say, fuck you with that lovely casualness. He wanted to sit with them on curbstones and compare the sharpness of jackknives to distance and arcs, the distance and arcs of spinning. In the toilet, he wanted to stare with them, the laurels of being able to pee far and long. Bayboy and P.L. had at one time been his idols. Gradually, he came to agree with his mother that neither Bayboy nor P.L. was good enough for him. He played only with Ralph Nesinski, who was two years younger, wore glasses, and didn't want to do anything. More and more, Junior enjoyed bullying girls. It was easy making them scream and run. How he laughed when they fell down and their bloomers showed. When they got up, their faces red and crinkled. It made him feel good. The nigger girls, he didn't pick on very much. They usually traveled in packs. And once when he threw a stone at some of them, they chased, caught, and beat him witless. He lied to his mother saying Bayboy did it. His mother was very upset. His father just kept on reading the Lorraine Journal. 
When the mood struck him, he would call a he would call a child passing by to come and play on the swings or the seesaw. If the child wouldn't or did and left too soon, Junior threw gravel at him. He became a very good shot. Alternately bored and frightened at home, the playground was his joy. On a day when he had been especially idle, he was he saw every he saw a very black girl taking a shortcut through the playground. She kept her head down as she walked. He had seen her many times before, standing alone, always alone, at recess. Nobody ever played with her, probably, he thought, because she was ugly. Now, Junior called her. Hey, what are you doing walking through my yard? The girl stopped. Nobody can come through my yard unless I say so. This ain't your yard, it's the school's. But I'm in charge of it. The girl started to walk away. Wait! Junior walked after her. You can play in it if you want to. What's your name? Piccola. I don't want to play. Come on, I'm not going to bother you. I got to go home. Say, you want to see something? I got something to show you. No. What is it? Come on in my house. See, I live right there. Come on, I'll show you. Show me what? Some kittens. We got some kittens. You can have one if you want. Real kittens? Yeah, come on. He pulled gently at her dress. Piccola began to move toward his house. When he knew, when she knew she had agreed, Junior ran ahead excitedly, stopping only to yell back at her to come on. He held the door open for her, smiling his encouragement. Piccola climbed the front porch stairs and hesitated there, afraid to follow him. The house looked dark. Junior said, there's nobody here. My mama's gone out and my father's at work. Don't you want to see the kittens? Junior turned on the lights. Piccola stepped inside the door. How beautiful, she thought. What a beautiful house. There was a big red and gold Bible on the dining room table. Little lace doilies were everywhere on arms and backs of chairs in the center of a large dining table. On little tables, potted plants were on all the windowsills. A colored picture of Jesus Christ hung on a wall with the prettiest paper flowers fastened on the frame. She wanted to see everything slowly, slowly. But Junior kept saying, hey, you, come on, come on. He pulled her into another room, even more beautiful than the first. More doilies, a big lamp with green and gold base and white shade. There was even a rug on the floor with enormous dark red flowers. She was in deep admiration of the flowers when Junior said, here, Piccola turned, here is your kitten. He screeched, and he threw a big black, cat, big black cat right in her face. She sucked in her breath in fear and surprise and felt fur in her mouth. The cat clawed her face and chest in an effort to right itself, then leaped nimbly to the floor. Junior was laughing and running around the room, clutching his stomach delightedly. Piccola touched the scratch place on her face and felt tears coming. When she started toward the doorway, Junior leapt in front of her. You can't get out. You're my prisoner, he said. His eyes were merry, but hard. You let me go. No, he pushed her down, ran out the door that separated the rooms and held it shut with his hands. Piccola's banging on the door increased his gasping, high-pitched laughter. The tears came fast and she felt her face in her hands. When something soft and furry moved around her ankles, she jumped and saw it was the cat. He wound himself 
in and about her legs, momentarily distracted from her fear. She squatted down to touch him, her hands wet from the tears. The cat rubbed against her knee. He was all black. He was black all over, deep silky black, and his eyes, pointing down toward his nose, were bluish green. The light made them shine like blue ice. Piccola rubbed the cat's head. He whined, his tongue flicking with pleasure. The blue eyes and the black face held her. Junior, curious at not hearing her sobs, opened the door and saw her squatting down, rubbing the cat's back. He saw the cat stretching its head and flattening its eyes. He had seen that expression many times as the animal responded to his mother's touch. Give me my cat. His voice broke. With a movement both awkward and sure, he snatched the cat by one of its hind legs and began to swing it around his head in a circle. Stop that! Piccolo was screaming. The cat's free paws were stiffened, ready to grab anything to restore balance, its mouth wide, its eyes blue streaks of horror. Still screaming, Piccolo reached for Junior's hand. She heard her dress rip under her arm. Junior tried to push her away, but she grabbed but she grabbed the arm which was swinging the cat. They both fell, and in falling, Junior let, the, let go of the cat, which, having been released in mid-motion, was thrown full force against the window. It slithered down and fell on the radiator behind the sofa. Except for a few shutters, it was still. There was only the slightest smell of singed fur. Geraldine opened the door. What is this? Her voice was mild as though asking a perfectly reasonable question. Who is this girl? She killed our cat, said Junior. Look, he pointed to the radiator where the cat lay, its blue eyes closed, leaving only an empty, black, and helpless face. Geraldine went to the radiator and picked up the cat. He was limp in her arms, but she rubbed her face in his fur. She looked at Piccola, saw the dirty, torn dress, the plaits sticking out on her head, hair matted where the plaits had come undone, the muddy shoes with the wad of gum peeping from between the cheap soles, the soiled socks, one of which had been walked down into the heel of the shoe. She saw the safety pin holding the hem of the dress up, up over the hump of the cat's back. She looked at her. She had seen this little girl all her life, hanging out of windows over saloons in Mobile, crawling over the porches of shotgun houses on the edge of town, sitting in bus stations holding paper bags and crying to mothers who kept saying, Shut up! Hair uncombed, dresses falling apart, shoes untied and caked with dirt. They had stared at her with great uncomprehending eyes, eyes that questioned nothing and asked everything. Unblinking and unabashed, they stared up at her. The end of the world lay in their eyes in the beginning and all the waste in between. They were everywhere. They slept six in a bed, all their pee mixing together in the night as they wet their beds, each in his own candy and potato chip dream. In the long hot days, they idled away, picking plaster from the walls and digging into the earth with sticks. They sat in little rows on street curbs crowded into pews at church, taking space from the nice, neat colored children. They clowned on the playgrounds, broke things in dime stores, ran in front of you on the street, made ice slides on, a, on slope sidewalks and went the girls grew up knowing nothing of girdles and the boys announced their manhood by turning the bills of their caps backward. Grass wouldn't grow where they lived. 
Flowers died, shades fell down, tin cans and tire blos and tires blossomed where they lived. They lived on coal black eyed peas and orange pop. Like flies they hovered, like flies they settled, and this one has settled in her house, up over the hump of a dead cat's of the cat's back. She looked. Get out, she said, her voice quiet. You nasty little black bitch. Get out of my house. The cat shuddered and flicked its tail. Piccola backed out of the room, staring at the pretty milk-brown lady in the pretty golden-green house who was talking to her through the cat's fur. The pretty lady's words made the cat's fur move. The breath of each word parted the fur. Piccola turned to find the door and saw Jesus looking down at her with sad and unsurprised eyes, his long brown hair parted in the middle, the gay paper flowers twisted around his face. Outside, the march wind blew into the rip in her dress. She held her head down against the cold, but she could not hold it low enough to avoid seeing the snowflakes falling and dying on the pavement. Spring The first twigs are thin, green, and supple. They bend into a complete circle but will not break their delicate showy hopefulness shooting from forsythia and lilac bushes meant only a change in whipping style. They beat us differently in the spring. Instead of the dull pain of a winter strap, these were the new green switches that lost their sting after the whipping was over. There was a nervous meaning in these long twigs that made us long for the steady stroke of a strap or the firm but honest slap of a hairbrush. Even now, spring for me is shot through with the remembered aches of switchings and forsythia holds no cheer. Sunk in the grass of an empty lot on a spring Sunday, I split the stems of milkweed and thought about ants and peach pits and death and where the world went when I closed my eyes. I must have lain long in the grass, for the shadow that was in front of me when I left the house had disappeared when I went back. I entered the house as the house was bursting with an uneasy quiet. Then I heard my mother singing something about trains and Arkansas. She came in the back door with some folded yellow curtains which she piled on the kitchen table. I sat down on the floor to listen to the song's story and noticed how strangely she was behaving. She still had her hat on and her shoes were dusty, as though she had been walking in deep dirt. She put on some water to boil and then swept the porch. Then she hauled out the curtain stretcher, but instead of putting the damp curtains on it, she swept the porch again, all the time singing about trains and Arkansas. When she finished, I went to look for Frida. I found her upstairs lying on our bed crying the tired, whimpering cry that follows the first wailings, mostly gasps and shudderings. I lie on the bed and looked at the tiny bunches of wild roses sprinkled over her dress. Many washings had faded their color and dimmed their outlines. What happened, Frida? She lifted a swollen face from the crook of her arm. Shuddering still, she sat up, letting her thin legs dangle over the bedside. I knelt on the bed and picked up the hem of my dress to wipe her running nose. She never liked wiping noses on clothes, but this time she let me. It was the way Mama did with her apron. Did you get a whipping? She shook her head no. Then why are you crying? Because. Because what? Mr. Henry? What'd he do? Daddy beat him up. What for? 
the Maginot Line? Did he find out about the Maginot Line? No. Well, what then? Come on, Frida. How come I can't know? He picked at me. Picked at you? You mean like Soaphead Church? Sort of. He showed his privates at you? No, he touched me. Where? Here and here? She pointed to the tiny breast that had... She pointed to the tiny breast that, like two fallen acorns, scattered a few faded rose leaves on her dress. Really? How'd it feel? Oh, Claudia, she sounded put out. I wasn't asking the right questions. I didn't feel like anything. But wasn't it supposed to? Feel good, I mean? Frida sucked her teeth. What'd he do? Just walked up and, and pinched them? She sighed. First, he said how pretty I was. Then he grabbed my arm and touched me. Where was Mama and Daddy? Over at the garden weeding. What'd you say when he did it? Nothing. I, I just ran out the kitchen and went to the garden. Mama said we was never to cross the tracks by ourselves. Well, what, what would you do? Sit there and, and let him pinch you? I looked at my chest. I didn't have anything to pinch. I, I'm never going to. Ha I'm never going to have nothing. Oh, Claudia, you're jealous of everything. You want him to? No, I just get tired of having everything last. You do not. What about scarlet fever? You had that first. Yes, but it didn't last. Anyway, what, what happened at the garden? I told Mama and she told Daddy and we all come home and he was gone. So we waited for him. And when Daddy saw him come up the porch, he threw our old tricycle at his head and knocked him off the porch. Did he die? No, he, he got up and started singing, Nearer my God to thee. Then Mama hit him with the broom and told him to keep the Lord's name out of his mouth. But he wouldn't stop. And Daddy was cussing and everybody was screaming. Oh, shoot, I always miss stuff. And Mr. Buford came running out with his gun and Mama told him to go somewhere and sit down. And Daddy said, no, give him the gun. And Mr. Buford did and Mama screamed and Mr. Henry shut up and started running. And Daddy shot at him and Mr. Henry jumped out of his shoes and went on running in his socks. Then Mary came out and said that Daddy was going to jail and I hit her. Real hard? Real hard. Is that when Mama whipped you? She didn't whip me, I told you. Then why are you crying? Miss Dunyon came in after everybody was quiet and Mama and Daddy was fussing about who let Mr. Henry in anyway. And she said that Mama should, should take me to the doctor because I might be ruined. And Mama started screaming all over again. At you? No, at Miss Dunyon. But why were you crying? I don't want to be ruined. What's ruined? You know, like the Maginot line, she's ruined. Mama said so. The tears came back. An image of Frida, big and fat, came to mind, her thin legs swollen, her face surrounded by layers of rouged skin. I, too, began to feel tears. But, Frida, you could exercise and not eat. She shrugged. Besides, what about China and Poland? They're ruined, too, aren't they? And they ain't fat. That's because they drink whiskey. Mama says whiskey ate them up. You could drink whiskey. Where would I get whiskey? We thought about this. Nobody would sell it to us. We had no money anyway. There was never any in our house. Who would have some? Piccola, I said. Her father's always drunk. She can get us some. You think so? Sure. Charlie's always drunk. Let's go ask her. We don't have to tell her what for. Now? Sure now. What do we tell Mama? Nothing. Just Let's just go out the back. One at a time so she won't notice. Okay. You go first, Claudia. 
We opened the fence gate at the bottom of the backyard and ran down the alley. Piccola lived on the other side of Broadway. We had never been in her house, but we knew where it was, a two-story gray building that had been a store downstairs and had an apartment upstairs. Nobody answered our knock on the front door, so we walked around to the side door. As we approached, we heard radio music and looked to see where it came from. Above us was the second-story porch lined with slanting, rotting rails, and sitting on the porch was the Maginot Line herself. We stared up automatically and reached for the other's hand, a mountain of flesh. She, she lay rather than sat in the rocking chair. She had no shoes on, and each foot was poked between a railing. Tiny baby toes at the tip of puffy feet, swollen ankles, smoothed and tightened the skin. Massive legs like tree stumps parted wide at the knees, over which spread two rows of soft, flabby inner thigh that kissed each other deep in the shade of her dress enclosed. A dark brown root beer bottle, like a burned limb, grew out of her dimpled hand. She looked at us down through the porch railings and emitted a low, long belch. Her eyes were as clean as rain, and again I remembered the waterfall. Neither of us could speak. Both of us imagined we were seeing what was to become a Frida. The Maginot line smiled at us. You all looking for somebody? I had to pull my tongue from the roof of, from the roof of my mouth to say... Piccola, she live here? Uh-huh, but she ain't here now. She gone with her mama's to her mama's work to, to get the wash. Yes, ma'am. Uh, is she coming back? Uh-huh. She got to hang up the clothes before the sun goes down. Oh, you can wait for her. Want to come up here and wait? We exchanged glances. I looked back up at the broad cinnamon roads that met in the shadow of her dress. Frida said, no, ma'am. Well, the Maginot line seemed interested in our problem. You can go to her mama's workplace, but it's way over by the lake. Where by the lake? That big white house with the wheelbarrow full of flowers. It was a house that we knew, having admired the large white wheelbarrow, tilted down on spoked wheels and planted with seasonal flowers. Ain't that too far for you all to go walking? Frida scratched her knee. Why don't you wait for her? You can come up here. Want some pop? Those rain-soaked eyes lit up, and her smile was full, not like the pinched and holding back smile of other grown-ups. I moved to go up the stairs, but Frida said, no, ma'am, we ain't allowed. I was amazed at her courage and frightened of her sassiness. The smile of the Maginot line slipped. Ain't allowed? No. Ain't allowed to what? Go in your house. Is that right? The waterfalls were still. How come? My mama said so. My mama said you ruined. The waterfalls began to run again. She put the root beer bottle to her lips and drank it empty. With a graceful movement of the wrist, a gesture so quick and small, we never really saw it, only remembered it afterwards, she tossed the bottle over the rail at us. It split at our feet and shards of brown glass dappled at our legs before we could jump back. The Maginot line put a fat hand on one of the folds of her stomach and laughed. At first, just a deep humming with her mouth closed, then a larger, warmer sound, laughter at once beautiful and frightening. She let her head tilt sideways, closed her eyes, and shook her massive trunk, letting the laughter fall like a wash of red leaves all around us. Scraps and, and curls of laughter followed us as we ran. Our breath gave out at the same time our legs did. After we rested against a tree, our heads on crossed forearms, I said, 
Let's go home. Frida was still angry, fighting, she believed, for her life. No, we got to get it now. We can't go all the way to the lake. Yes, we can. Come on. Mama gonna get us. No, she ain't. Besides, she can't do nothing but whip us. That was true. She, she wouldn't kill us or laugh a terrible laugh at us or throw a bottle at us. We walked down tree-lined streets of soft gray houses leaning like tired ladies. The streets changed. Houses looked more sturdy. Their paint was never, their paint was newer. Porch posts straighter, yards deeper. Then came brick houses set well back from the street, fronted by yards edged in shrubbery, clipped into smooth cones and walls of velvet green. The lakefront houses were the loveliest. Garden furniture, ornaments, windows like shiny eyeglasses, and no sign of life. The backyards of these houses fell away into green slopes down to a strip of sand, and when the blue Lake Erie lapping all the way to Canada. The orange patch sky of the steel mill section never reached this part of town. The sky was always blue. We reached Lakeshore Park, a city park laid out with rosebuds, fountains, bowling greens, picnic tables. It was empty now, but sweetly expectant of clean, white, well-behaved children and parents who would play there above the lake in summer before half running, half stumbling down the slope to the welcoming water. Black people were not allowed in the park, and so it filled our dreams. Right before the entrance to the park was the large white house with the wheelbarrow full of flowers, short crocus blades sheathed to purple and white, hearts that so wished to be the first they endured the chill of rain of early spring. The walkway was flagged in calculated disorder, hiding the cunning symmetry. Only fear of discovery and the knowledge that we did not belong kept us from loitering. We circled the proud house and went to the back. There, on the tiny railed stoop, sat Piccola in a light red sweater and blue cotton dress. A little wagon was parked near her. She seemed glad to see us. Hi! Hi! What you all doing here? She was smiling, and since it was an and since it was a rare thing to see on her, I was surprised at the pleasure it gave me. We're looking for you. Who told you I was here? The Maginot line. Who is that? That big fat lady. She lives over near you. Oh, you mean Miss Marie. Her name is Miss Marie. Well, everybody calls her Maginot Line. Ain't you scared? Scared of what? The Maginot Line. Piccola looked genuinely puzzled. What for? Your mama let you go in her house and eat off her plates? She don't know I go. Miss Marie is nice. They all nice. Oh, yeah, I said. She tried to kill us. Who, Miss Marie? She don't bother nobody. Then how come your mama don't let you go in her house if she's so nice? I don't know. She say she's bad, but they ain't bad. They give me stuff all the time. What stuff? Oh, lots of stuff. Pretty dresses and shoes. I get more shoes than I ever wear. And jewelry and candy and money. They take me to the movies and once we went to the carnival. China gonna take me to Cleveland to see the square. And Poland gonna take me to Chicago to see the loop. We going everywhere together. You lying. You don't have no pretty dresses. I do too. Oh, come on, Piccola. What you telling us all this junk for? Frida asked. It ain't junk. Piccola stood up ready to defend her words when the door opened. Mrs. Breedlove stuck her head out the door and said, What's going on out here? Piccola, who are these children? That's Frida and Claudia, Mrs. Breedlove. 
Whose girls are you? She came all the way out on the stoop. She looked nicer than I had ever seen her in her white uniform and her hair and a small pompadour. Mrs. McTeer's girls, ma'am. Oh, yes. Live over on 21st Street. Yes, ma'am. What are you doing way over here? Just walking. We came to see Picola. Well, you better get on back. You can walk You can walk with Picola. Come on in while I get the wash. We stepped into the kitchen, a large, spacious room. Mrs. Breedlove's skin glowed like taffeta in the reflection of white porcelain, white wood, white woodwork, polished cabinets, and brilliant copperware. Odors of meat, vegetables, and something freshly baked mixed with the scent of Fell's naphtha. I'm going to get the wash. You all stand stock still right there and don't mess up nothing. She disappeared behind a white swinging door, and we could hear the uneven flap of her footsteps as she descended into the basement. Another door opened, and in walked a little girl, smaller and younger than all of us. She wore a pink sunback dress and pink fluffy bedroom slippers with two bunny ears pointed up from the tips. Her hair was corn, her hair was corn yellow and bound in a thick ribbon. When she saw us, fear danced across her face for a second. She looked anxiously around the kitchen. Where's Polly? She asked. The familiar violence rose in me. Her calling Mrs. Breedlove Polly, even when Picola called her own mother Mrs. Breedlove, seemed reason enough to scratch her. She's downstairs, I said. Polly, she called. Look, Frida whispered. Look at that. On the counter near the stove in a jewelry pan was a deep dish berry cobbler, the purple juice bursting here and there through the crust. We moved closer. It's still hot, Frida said. Piccola stretched her hand to touch the pan, lightly to see if it was hot. Polly, come here, the little girl called again. It may have been nervousness, awkwardness, but the pan tilted under Piccola's fingers and fell to the floor, splattering blackish blueberries everywhere. Most of the juice splashed on Piccola's legs, and the burn must have been painful, for she cried out and began hopping about just as Mrs. Breedlove entered with a tightly packed laundry bag. In one gallop, she was on Piccola, and with the back of her hand, knocked her to the floor. Piccola slid in the pie juice, one leg folding under her. Mrs. Breedlove yanked her up by the arm, slapped her again, and in a voice thin with anger, abused Piccola directly and Frida and me by implication. Crazy fool, my floor, mess, look what, look what you did, work, get on out. Now that crazy, my floor, my floor. Her words were hotter and darker than the smoking berries, and we backed away in dread. The little girl in pink started to cry. Mrs. Breedlove turned to her. Hush, baby, hush. Come here. Oh, Lord, look at your dress. Don't cry no more. Polly will change it. She went to the sink and turned tap water on a fresh towel. Over her shoulder, she spit out the words to us like rotten pieces of apple. Pick up that wash and get on out of here so I can get this mess cleaned up. Piccola picked up the laundry bag, heavy with wet clothes, and we stepped hurriedly out the door. As Piccola put the laundry bag in the wagon, we could hear Mrs. Breedlove hushing and soothing the tears of the little pink and yellow girl. Who were they, Polly? Don't worry none, baby. You gonna make me another pie? Course I will. Who were they, Polly? Hush, don't you worry none, she whispered, and the honey in her words complimented the sundown spilling on the lake. The easiest thing to do would be to build a case out of her foot. 
that is what she did. That is what she herself did. But to find out the truth about how dreams die, one should never take the word of the dreamer. The end of her lovely beginning was probably the cavity in one of her front teeth. She preferred, however, to think always of her foot. Although she was in the ninth of although she was the ninth of eleven children and lived on a ridge of red Alabama clay seven miles from the nearest road, the complete indifference with which a nusty rail was met when it punched clear through her foot during the second year of life saved Miss Pauline Williams from total anonymity. The wound left her with a crooked, archless foot that plopped when she walked, not a limp that would have eventually twisted her spine but a way of lifting the bad foot as though she were extracting it from little whirlpools that threatened to pull it under. Slight as it was, this deformity explained for her many things that would have been otherwise incomprehensible. Why she alone of all the children had no nickname. Why there were no funny jokes and anecdotes about funny things she had done. Why no one ever remarked on her food preferences. No saving of the wing or neck for her. No cooking of the peas in a separate pot without rice because she did not like rice. Why nobody teased her. Why she never felt at home anywhere or that she belonged any place. Her general feeling of separateness and unworthiness she blamed on her foot. Restricted as a child to this cocoon of her family spinning, she cultivated quiet and private pleasures. She liked, most of all, to arrange things, to line things up in rows, jars on shelves at canning, peach pits on the step, sticks, stones, leaves, and the members of her family let these arrangements be. When, by some accident, somebody scattered her rows, they always stopped to retrieve them for her, and she was never angry, for it gave her a chance to rearrange them again. Whatever portable plurality she found, she organized into neat lines according to their size, shape, or their gradations of color. Just as she would never align a pine needle with the leaf of a cottonwood tree, she would never put the jars of tomatoes next to the green beans. During all four of her years of going to school, she was enchanted by numbers and depressed by words. She missed, without knowing what she missed, paints and crayons. Near the beginning of World War I, the Williamses discovered from returning neighbors and kin the possibility of living better in another place. In shifts, lots, batches, mixed in with other families, they migrated in six months and four journeys to Kentucky, where there were mines and millwork. When all of us left from down home and was waiting down by the, dep by the depot for the truck, it was nighttime. June bugs were shooting everywhere. They lighted up a tree leaf, and I seen a streak of green every now and again. That was the last time I seen real June bugs. These things up here ain't June bugs. They something else. Folks here called them fireflies. Down home, they was different. But I recollect that streak of green. I recollect it well. In Kentucky, they lived in a real town, 10 to 15 houses on a single street, with water piped right into the kitchen. Ada and Fowler Williams found a five-room frame house for their family. The yard was bounded by, once white, by a once-white fence, against which Pauline's mother planted flowers, and within which they kept a few chickens. Some of her brothers joined the army. One sister died and two got married, increasing the living space and giving the entire Kentucky venture a feel of luxury. The relocation was especially comfortable to Pauline, who was old enough to leave school. 
Mrs. Williams got a job cleaning and cooking for a white minister on the other side of town, and Pauline, now the oldest girl at home, took over the care of the house. She kept the fence in repair, pulling and pointed stakes, erect, securing them with bits of wire, collected eggs, swept, cooked, washed, and minded the two younger children, a pair of twins called Chicken and Pie, who were still in school. She was not only good at housekeeping, she enjoyed it. After her parents left for work and the other children were at school or in the mine, the house was quiet. The stillness and isolation both calmed and energized her. She could arrange and clean without interruption until two o'clock when chicken and pie came home. When the war ended and the twins were 10 years old, they too left school to work. Pauline was 15, still keeping house, but with less enthusiasm. Fantasies about men and love and touching were drawing her mind and hands away from her work. Changes in weather began to affect her, as did certain sights and sounds. These feelings trans translated themselves to her in extreme melancholy. She thought of the death of newborn things, lonely roads and strangers who appear out of nowhere simply to hold one's hands, woods in which the sun was always setting. In church especially did these dreams grow. The songs caressed her, and while she tried to hold her mind on the wages of sin, her body trembled for redemption, salvation, a mysterious rebirth that would simply happen with no effort on her part. In none of her fantasies was she ever aggressive. She was usually idling by the riverbank or gathering berries in a field when someone appeared with gentle and penetrating eyes who, with no exchange of words, understood, and before whose glance her foot straightened and her eyes dropped. The someone had no face, no form, no voice, no odor. He was a simple presence, an all-embracing tenderness with strength and a promise of rest. It did not matter. It did not matter that she had no idea of what to do or say to the presence. After the wordless knowing and the soundless touching, her dreams disintegrated. But the presence would know what to do. She had only to lay her head on his chest, and he would lead her away to the sea, to the city, to the woods forever. There was a woman named Ivy who seemed to hold in her mouth all of the sounds of Pauline's soul. Standing a little apart from the choir, Ivy sang the dark sweetness that Pauline could not name. She sang the death-defying death that Pauline yearned for. She sang of the stranger who knew. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Let me stand. I am tired. I am weak. I am worn. Through the storms, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me on. When my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near. When my life is almost gone, hear my cry, hear my call. Hold my hand lest I fall. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me on. Thus, it was that when the stranger, the someone, did appear out of nowhere. Pauline was grateful but not surprised. He came strutting right out of a Kentucky sun on the hottest day of the year. He came big. He came strong. He came with yellow eyes, flaring nostrils, and he came with his own music. Pauline was leaning idly on the fence, her arms resting on the crossrail, on the crossrail between the pickets. She had just put down some biscuit dough and was cleaning the flour from under her nails. Behind her, at some distance, she heard whistling. One of these rapid, 
high note riffs that black boys make up as they go while sweeping, shoveling, or just walking along. A kind of city street music where laughter belies anxiety, and joy is as short and straight as the blade of a pocket knife. She listened carefully to the music and let it pull her lips into a smile. The whistling got louder and she still did not turn around for she wanted it to last. While smiling to herself and holding fast to the break in somber thoughts, she felt something tickling her foot. She laughed aloud and turned to see. The whistler was bending down, tickling her broken foot and kissing her leg. She could not stop her laughter, not until she looked up, not until he looked up at her, and she saw the Kentucky sun drenching the yellow, heavy-lidded eyes of Charlie Breedlove. When I first see Charlie, I want you to know it was like all the bits of color from that time down home when all us children went berry picking after a funeral and I put some in my pocket of my Sunday dress and they mashed up and stained my hips. My whole dress was messed with purple and it never did wash out. Not the dress nor me. I could feel that purple deep inside me and that lemonade mama used to make when, when pap came in out of the fields. It'd be cool and yellowish with seeds floating near the bottom and that streak of green them June bugs made on the trees the night we left from down home. All of them colors was in me, just sitting there, so when Charlie came up and tickled my foot, it was like them berries, that lemonade, them streaks of green the June bugs made, all come together. Charlie was thin then, with real light eyes. He used to whistle, and when I heard him, shivers came on my skin. Pauline and Charlie loved each other, he seemed to relish her company and even to enjoy her country ways and late and, and lack of knowledge about city things. He talked with her about her foot and asked when they walked through the town or in the fields if she were tired. Instead of ignoring her ignoring her informity, pretending it was not there, he made it seem like something special and endearing. For the first time, Pauline felt that her bad foot was an asset. And he did touch her firmly but gently just as she had dreamed, but minus the gloom of setting suns and lonely river banks, She was secure and grateful. He was kind and lively. She had not known where there was so much laughter in the whole world. They agreed to marry and go way up north where Charlie said still mills were begging for workers. Young, loving, and full of energy, they came to Lorraine, Ohio. Charlie found work in the still mills right away, and Pauline started keeping house. And then she lost her front tooth, but there must have been a speck, a brown speck easily mistaken for food, which did not leave, which sat on the enamel for months and grew until it cut into the surfaces and then to the brown putty underneath, finally eating away to the root, but avoiding the nerve so its presence was not noticeable or uncomfortable. Then the weakened roots, having grown accustomed to the poison, responded one day to severe pressure and the tooth fell free, leaving a ragged stump behind. But even before the little brown speck, there must have been the conditions, the setting that would allow it to exist in the first place. In that young and growing Ohio town, whose side streets even were paved with concrete, which sat on the edge of a calm blue lake, which boasted an affinity with Oberlin, the underground railroad station just 13 miles away, this melting pot on the lip of America facing the cold but receptive Canada, what could go wrong? Me and Charlie was getting along good then. We come up north, supposed to be more jobs and all. 
We moved into two rooms up over a furniture store, and I set about housekeeping. Charlie was working at the steel plant, and everything was looking good. I don't know what all happened. Everything changed. It was hard to get to know folks up here, and I missed my people. I wasn't used to so much white folks. The ones I see before was something hateful, but they didn't come around too much. I mean, we didn't have too much truck with them. Just now and then, in the fields or at the commissary, but they want all over us. Up north, they was everywhere, next door, downstairs, all over the streets, and colored folks few and far between. Northern colored folks was different, too. Dicty-like, no, no better than whites for meanness. They could make you feel just as no count, except... I didn't expect it from them. That was the lonesomest time in my life. I remember looking out them front windows and just waiting for Charlie to come home at three o'clock. I didn't even have a cat to talk to. In her loneliness, she turned to her husband for reassurance, for entertainment, for all things to fill the vacant places. Housework was not enough. There were only two rooms and no yard to keep or to move about in. The women in the town wore high-heeled shoes, and when Pauline tried to wear them, they aggravated her shuffle into a pronounced limp. Charlie was kindness still, but began to resist her total dependence on him. They were beginning to have less and less to say to each other. He had no problem finding other people to say things to and to occupy him. Men were always climbing the stairs asking for him, and he was happy to accompany them, leaving her alone. Pauline felt uncomfortable with the few black women she met. They were amused by her because she did not straighten her hair. When she tried to make up her face as they did, it came off rather badly. Their goading glances and private snickers at her way of talking, saying children and dressing, developed in her a desire for new clothes. When Charlie began to quarrel about the money she wanted, she decided to go to work. Taking jobs as a day worker helped with the clothes and even a few things for the apartment, but it did not help with Charlie. He was not pleased with her purchases and began to tell her so. Their marriage was shredded with quarrels. She was still no more than a girl and still waiting for that plateau of happiness, that hand of a precious lord who, when her way grew drear, would always linger near. Only now she had a clearer idea of what drear meant. Money became the focus of all their discussions, hers for clothes, his for drink. The sad thing was that Pauline did not really care for clothes and makeup. She merely wanted other women to cast favorable glances her way. After several months of doing day work, she took a steady job in the home of a family of slender means and nervous, pretentious ways. Charlie commenced to getting meaner and meaner and wanted to fight me all the time. I give him as good as I got. Had to. Looked like working for that woman and fighting Charlie was all I did. Tiresome. But I hoped on to my jobs, even though working for that woman was more than a notion. It wasn't so much her meanness as just simple-minded. Her whole family was. Couldn't get along with one another worth nothing. You'd think with a pretty house like that and all the money they could hold on to, they would enjoy one another. She haul off and cry over the leastest thing. If one of her friends cut her short on the telephone, she'd go to crying. She should have been glad she had a telephone. I ain't got one yet. I recollect once how her baby brother, who she put through dentistry school, didn't invite them to some big party he throwed. There was a bit to do about that. 
Everybody stayed on the telephone for days, fussing and carrying on. She asked me, Pauline, what would you do if your brother had a party and didn't invite you? I said, if and I really wanted to go to that party, I reckon I'd go anyhow. Never mind what he want. She just sucked her teeth a little and made out like what and made out like what I said was dumb. All the while, I was thinking how dumb she was. Whoever told her that her, her brother was her friend? Folks can't like folks just because they have the same mama. I tried to like that woman myself. She was good about giving me stuff, but I just couldn't like her. Soon as I worked up a good feeling on her account, she'd do something ignorant and start in on telling me how to clean and do. If I left her on her own, she'd drown in dirt. I didn't have to pick up after after chicken and pie the way I had to pick up after them. None of them knew so much as how to wipe their behinds. I know, because I did the washing, and I couldn't pee proper to save their lives. Her husband ain't hit the bowl yet. Nasty white folks is about the nastiest thing they is, but I wouldn't have stayed, stayed on septin' for Charlie come over by where I was working and cut up so. He come there drunk, wanting, wanting some money. When that white woman see him, she turned red. She tried to act strong like, but she was scared bad. Anyway, she told Charlie to get out or she would call the police. He cussed her and started pulling on me. I would have gone upside his head, but I don't want no dealings with the police. So I'd taken my things and left. I tried to get back, but she didn't want me no more if I was going to stay with Charlie. She said she would let, she said she would let me if I left him. I thought about that. But later on, it didn't seem none too bright for a black woman to leave a black man for a white woman. She didn't never give me $11 she owed me, neither. That hurt bad. The gas man had cut the gas off and I couldn't cook none. I really begged that woman for my money. I went to see her. She was mad and wet as a hen. Kept on telling me, kept on telling me I owed her for uniforms and some old broken down bed she gave me. I didn't know if I owed her or not, but I needed my money. She wouldn't let up none, neither. Even when I give her my word that Charlie wouldn't come back there no more. Then I got so desperate, I asked her if she would loan it to me. She was quiet for a spell, and then she told me I shouldn't let a man take advantage over me, that I should have more respect, and if and it was my husband's duty to pay the bills, and if he couldn't, I should leave and get alimony. All such simple stuff. What was he going to give me alimony on? I seen she didn't understand that all I needed from her was my $11 to pay the gas man so I could cook. She couldn't get that one thing through her thick head. Are you going to leave him, Pauline? She kept on saying. I thought she'd give me my money if I said I would. So I said, yes, ma'am. All right, she said. You leave him, then come back to work and we'll let bygones be bygones. Can I have my money today? I said, no, she said, only when you leave him. I'm only thinking of you and your future. What good is he, Pauline? What good is he to you? How are you going, how, how are you going to answer a woman like that who don't know what a good man is and say out one side of her mouth she's thinking of your future but won't give you your own money so you can buy something you need besides bologna to eat? So I said, no good, ma'am. He ain't no good to me, but just the same. I think it best I stay on. She got up and I left. When I got outside, I felt pains in my crotch. I had held my my legs together so tight trying to make that woman understand, but I reckon now she couldn't understand. She married a man with slash in his face instead of a mouth. How could she understand? One winter, Pauline discovered she was pregnant. When she told Charlie, he surprised her by being pleased. He began to drink less and come home more often. 
they eased back into a relationship more like the early days of their marriage when he asked if she were tired or wanted him to bring her something from the store. In this state of ease, Pauline stopped doing day work and returned to her own housekeeping. But the loneliness in those two rooms had not gone away. When the winter sun hit the peeling green paint of the kitchen chairs, when the smoked hocks were boiling in the pot, when all she could hear was the truck delivering furniture downstairs, she thought about back home, about how she had been all alone most of the time then too, but that this lonesomeness was different. Then she stopped staring at the green chairs, at the delivery truck. She went to the movies instead. There, in the dark, her memory was refreshed, and she succumbed to her earlier dreams. Along with the idea of romantic love, she was introduced to another physical beauty, probably the most destructive idea in the history of human thought. But both originated in envy, thrived in insecurity, and ended in delusion. In equating physical beauty with virtue, she stripped her mind, bounded, and collected self-contempt by the heat. She forgot lust and, and simple caring for. She regarded love as a possessive mating and romance as the goal of the spirit. It would be for her a wellspring from which she would draw the most destructive emotions, deceiving the lover and seeking to imprison the beloved, curtailing freedom in every way. She was never able, after her education in the movies, to look at a face and not assign it some category in the scale of absolute beauty. And the scale was one she absorbed in full from the silver screen. There at least were the darkened woods, the lonely roads, the riverbanks, the gentle knowing eyes. There the flawed became whole, the blind sighted and the lame, and halt threw away their crutches. Their death was dead, and people made every gesture in a cloud of music. There the black and white images came together, making a magnificent whole, all projected through the ray of light from above and behind. It was really a simple gesture, but she learned all there was to love and all there was to hate. The onlyest time I be happy seemed like was when I was in the picture show. Every time I got, I went. I'd go early before the show started. They'd cut off the lights and everything be black. Then the screen would light up and I'd move right on in them pictures. White men taking such good care of they women. And, and they all dressed up in big clean houses with big bathtubs right in the same room with the toilet. Them pictures gave me a lot of, a lot of pleasure, but it made coming home hard and looking at Charlie hard. I didn't know. I remember one time I went to see Clark Gable and Jean Harlow. I fixed my hair up like I'd seen hers on the magazine, a part on the side with one little curl in my forehead. It looked just like her. Well, almost just like. Anyway, I sat in that show with my hair done up that way and had a good time. I thought I'd see it through to the end again, and I got up to get me some candy. I was sitting back in my seat, and I'd taken a big bite of that candy, and it pulled a tooth right out of my mouth. I could have cried. I had good teeth not a rotten one in my head. I don't believe I ever did get over that. There I was, five months pregnant, trying to look like Jean Harlow and a front tooth gone. Everything went then. Looked like I just didn't care no more after that. I let my hair go back, plaited it up, and settled down to just being ugly. I still went to the pictures, though, but the meanness got worse. I wanted my tooth back. Charlie poked fun at me, and we started fighting again. 
I tried to kill him. He didn't hit me too hard because I was pregnant, I guess, but the fights, once they got started up again, kept up. He began to make me madder than anything I knowed, and I couldn't keep my hands off him. Well, I had that baby, a boy, and after that got pregnant with another one, but it weren't like I thought it was going to be. I loved them all, I guess, but maybe it was having no money, or maybe it was Charlie, but they sure worried the life out of me. Sometimes I'd catch myself hollering at them and beating them, and I'd feel sorry for them, but I couldn't seem to stop. When I had the second one, a girl, I remember I said I'd love it no matter what it looked like. She looked like a black ball of hair. I don't recollect trying to get pregnant that first time, but that second time I actually tried to get pregnant, maybe because I'd, I'd had one already and, and wasn't scared to do it. Anyway, I, I felt good and wasn't thinking on the carrying, just the baby itself. I used to talk to it whilst it'd still be in the womb, like good friends we was. You know, I'd be hanging the wash and I knowed lifting weren't good for it. I'd say to it, hold on now, I gotta hang up these few rags, don't get froggy. It'd be over soon. It wouldn't leap or nothing. Or I'd be mixing something in a bowl for the other child and I'd talk to it then too. You know, just friendly talk. On up to the end, I feel good about that baby. I went to the hospital when my time come so I could be easeful. I didn't want to have it at home like I'd done with the boy. They put me in a big room with a whole mess of women. The pains was coming, but not bad. A little old doctor came to examine me. He had all sorts of stuff. He gloved his hand and put some kind of jelly on it and rammed it up between my legs. When he left off, some more doctors come and... One old one told some young ones, the old one was learning the young ones about babies, showing them how to do. When he got to me, he said, now these here women you don't have any trouble with. They deliver right away and with no pain, just like horses. The young ones smiled a little. They looked at my stomach and between my legs. They never said nothing to me. Only one looked at me, looked at my face, I mean. I looked right back at him. He dropped his eyes and turned red. He knowed, I reckon, that maybe I weren't no horse fowling, but them others, they didn't know. They went on. I see them talking to them white women. How you feel? Gonna have twins? Just shucking them, of course, but nice talk, nice friendly talk. I got edgy, and when them pains got harder, I was glad, glad to have something else to think about. I moaned something awful. The pains wasn't as bad as I let on, but I had to let them people know I was having a baby and was more and that having a baby was more than just a bowel movement. I hurt just like them white women. Just because I wasn't hooping and hollering before didn't mean I wasn't feeling pain. What'd they think? That just because I knowed how to have a baby with no fuss that my behind wasn't pulling and aching like theirs? Besides, that doctor don't know what he's talking about. He must never see no mare foal. Who say they don't have no pain? Just cause she don't cry, cause she can't say it, they think it ain't there. If they looks in her eyes and see them eyeballs rolling back, see the sorrowful look, they know. Anyways, the baby come, big old healthy thing. She looked different from what I thought. Reckon I talked to it so much before I conjured up a mind's eye view of it. When I seed it, it was like looking at a picture of your mama when she was a girl. She knows who she is, but she don't look the same. They give her to me for a nursing, and she liked to pull my nipple off right away. She caught on fast. Not like Sammy. He was the hardest child to feed, but Piccola looked like she knowed right off what to do. 
A right smart baby she was. I, I used to like to watch her, you know, that makes them greedy sounds, eyes all soft and wet, a cross between a puppy and a dying man. But I knowed she was ugly, head full of pretty hair, but Lord, she was ugly. When Sammy and Pecola were still young, Pauline had to go back to work. She was older now with no time for dreams and movies. It was time to put all of the pieces together, make coherence where before there had been none. The children gave her this need. She herself was no longer a child. So she became, and her process of becoming was like most of ours. She developed a hatred for things that mystified or obstructed her, acquired virtues that were easy to maintain, assigned herself a role in the scheme of things, and harked back to simpler times for gratification. She took on the full responsibility and recognition of breadwinner and returned to church. First, however, she moved out of the two rooms into a spacious first floor of a building that had been built as a store. She came into her own with the women who had despised her by being more moral than they. She avenged herself on Charlie by forcing him to indulge in the weakness she despised. She joined a church where shouting was frowned upon, served a stewardess board number three, served on stewardess board number three, and became a member of Lady Circle number one. At prayer meeting, she moaned and sighed over Charlie's ways and hoped God would help her keep the children from the sins of the father. She stopped saying children and said children instead. She let another tooth fall and was outraged by painted ladies who thought only of clothes and men. Holding Charlie as a model of sin and failure, she bore him like a crown of thorns and her children like a cross. It was her good fortune to find a permanent job and the home of a well-to-do family whose members were affectionate, appreciative, and generous. She looked at their houses, smelled their linen, touched their silk draperies, and loved all of it. The child's pink nightie, the stacks of white pillow slips edged with embroidery, the sheets with top hems picked out with blue cornflowers. She became what is known as an ideal servant. For such a role filled practically all of her needs. She was bathed. When she bathed, the little fisher girl, it was into a porcelain tub with silvery taps running infinite quantities of hot, clear water. She dried her in fluffy white towels and put her in cuddly night clothes. Then she brushed the yellow hair, enjoying the roll and slip of it between her fingers. No zinc tub, no buckets of stove-heated water, no flaky, stiff, grayish towels washed in the kitchen sink, dried in the dusty backyard, no tangled black puffs of rough wool to comb. Soon she stopped trying to keep her own house. The things she could afford to buy did not last, had no beauty or style, and were absorbed by the dingy storefront. More and more she neglected her house. For her she neglected her house, her children, her man. They were like the afterthoughts one has just before sleep, the early morning and late evenings, edges of her day, the dark edges that made the daily life with the fishers lighter, more delicate, more lovely. Here she could arrange things, clean things, line things up in neat rows. Here her foot flopped around on deep pile carpets, and there was no uneven sound. Here she found beauty, order, cleanliness, and praise. Mr. Fisher said, I would rather sell her blueberry cobblers than real estate. She reigned over cupboards stacked high with food. 
that would not be eaten for weeks, even months. She was queen of canned vegetables bought by the case, special fondants and ribbon candy curled up in tiny silver dishes. The creditors and service people who, who humiliated her when she went to them on her own behalf respected her, were even intimidated by her when she spoke for the fishers. She refused beef slightly dark or with edges not properly trimmed. The slightly reeking fish that she accepted for her own family, she would all but throw in the fish man's face if, if he sent it to the fisher house. Power, praise, and luxury were hers in this household. They even gave her what she had never had, a nickname, Polly. It was her pleasure to stand in her kitchen at the end of the day and survey her handiwork, knowing there were soap bars by the dozen, bacon by the rasher, and reveling in her shiny pots and pans and polished floors, hearing, we'll never let her go. We could never find anybody like Polly. She will not leave the kitchen until everything is in order. Really, she is an ideal servant. Pauline kept this order, this beauty for herself, a private world, and never introduced it into her storefront or to her children. Them she bent towards respectability, and in so doing taught them fear, fear of being clumsy, fear of being like their father, fear of not being loved by God, fear of madness like Charlie's mother. Into her son she beat a loud desire to run away, and into her daughter she beat a fear of growing up, fear of other people, fear of life. All the meaningfulness of her life was in her work, for her virtues were intact. She was an active churchwoman, did not drink, smoke, or carouse, defended herself mightily against Charlie, rose above him in every way, and felt she was fulfilling a mother's role conscientiously when she pointed out their father's faults to them for having them or punished them when they showed any slovenliness. No matter how slight, when she worked 12 to 16 hours a day to support them, and the world itself agreed with her. It was only sometimes, sometimes, and then rarely that she thought about the old days or what her life had turned into. They were musings, idle thoughts, full sometimes of the old dreaminess, but not the kind of thing she cared to dwell on. I started to leave him once, but something came up. Once, after he tried to set the house on fire, I was all set in my mind to go. I can't even remember now what held me. He sure ain't give me much of a life, but it wasn't all bad. Sometimes things wasn't all bad. He he used to come he used to come easing into bed sometimes, not too drunk. I make out like I'm asleep because it's late, and he'd taken three dollars out of my pocketbook that morning or something. I hear him breathing, but I don't look around. I can see it in my mind's eye, his black arms thrown behind his head, the muscles like great big peach stones sanded down with veins running like little swollen rivers down his arms. Without touching him, I be feeling those ridges on the tips of my fingers. I see the palms of his hands callous to granite and the long fingers curled up and still. I think about the thick knotty hair on his chest and the two big swells his breast muscles make. I want to rub my face hard in his chest and feel the hair cut my skin. I know just where the hair growth slacks out, just above his navel and how it picks up again and spreads out. Maybe he'll shift a little and his leg will touch me or I feel his flank just graze my behind. I don't move even I don't move even yet. Then he lifts his head, turn over and put his hand on my waist. If I don't move, he'll move his hand over to pull and knead my stomach, soft and slow like. 
I still don't move because I don't want him to stop. I want to pretend sleep and have him keep on rubbing my stomach. Then he will lean his head down and bite my tit. Then I don't want him to rub my stomach anymore. I want him to put his hand between my legs. I pretend to wake up and turn to him, but not opening my legs. I want him to open them for me. He does, and I be soft and wet where his fingers are strong and hard. I be softer than I ever been before. All my strength in his hand. My brain curls up like wilted leaves. A funny, empty feeling is in my hands. I want to grab hold of something, so I hold his head. His mouth is under my chin. Then I, I don't want his hand between my legs no more because I think I'm softening anyway. I stretch my legs open and he is on top of me. Too heavy to hold and too light not to. He puts his thing in me, in me, in me. I wrap my feet around his back so he can't get away. His face is next to mine. The bed spring sounds like them crickets used to back home. He puts his fingers in mine and we stretches our arms outwise like Jesus on the cross. I hold on tight. My fingers and my feet hold on tight because everything else is going, going. I know he wants me to come first, but I can't. Not until he does. Not until I feel him loving me. Just me, sinking into me. Not until I know that my flesh is all that be on his mind. That he couldn't stop if he had to. That he would die rather than take his thing out of me, of me. Not until he has let go of all he has and give it to me. When he does, I feel a power. I be strong. I be pretty. I be young. And then I wait. He shivers and tosses his head. Now I be strong enough, pretty enough, and young enough to let him make me come. I take my fingers out of his and put my hands on his behind. My legs drop back onto the bed. I don't make no noise because the children might hear. I begin to feel those little bits of color floating up in me, deep in me. That streak of green from the June bug light. The purple from the berries trickling along my thighs. Mama's lemonade yellow runs sweet in me. Then I feel like I'm laughing between my legs and the laughing gets all mixed up with the colors and I'm afraid I'll come and afraid I won't. But I know I will and I do. And it be rainbow all inside and it lasts and lasts and lasts. I want to thank him but I don't know how so I pat him like you do a baby. He asks me if I'm all right. I say yes. He gets off me and lies down to sleep. I want to say something, but I don't. I don't want to take my mind off in the rainbow. I should get up and go to the toilet, but I don't. Besides, Charlie is asleep with his leg thrown over me. I can't move and I don't want to. But it can't be like that no more. Most times he's thrashing away inside me before I'm woke and through when I am. The rest of the time, I can't even be next to his stinking drunk self. But I don't care about it no more. My maker will take care of me. I know he will. I know he will. Besides, it don't make no difference about this old earth. There is sure to be a glory. Only thing I miss sometimes is that rainbow. But like I say, I don't recollect it much anymore. When Charlie was four days old, his mother wrapped him in two blankets and one newspaper and placed him on a junk heap by the railroad. His great-aunt Jimmy, who had seen her niece carrying a bundle out the back door, rescued him. She beat his mother with a razor strap and wouldn't let her near the baby after that. Aunt Jimmy raised Charlie herself, 
but took delight sometimes in telling him of how she had saved him. He gathered from her that his mother wasn't right in the head, but he never had a chance to find out because she ran away shortly after the razor strap and no one had heard of her since. Charlie was grateful for having been saved, except sometimes, sometimes when he watched Aunt Jimmy eating collards with her fingers, sucking her four gold teeth, or smelled her when she wore the asafoetida bag around her neck, or when she made him sleep with her for warmth in winter and he could see her old wrinkled breast sagging in her nightgown, then he wondered whether it would have just been as well to have died there. Down in the rim of a tire under a soft black Georgia sky. He had four years of school before he got courage enough to ask his aunt who and where his father was. That fuller boy, I believe it was, his aunt said. He was hanging around then, but he'd take off pretty quick before you was born. I think he going to make him, him and his brother, maybe both. I hear old man Fuller say something about it once. What name he have? asked Charlie. Fuller, foolish. I mean, what his given name? Oh, she closed her eyes to think and sighed. Can't recollect nothing more. Sam, was it? Yeah, Samuel. No, no, it wasn't. It was Samson, Samson Fuller. How come you didn't name me Samson? Charlie's voice was low. What for? He wasn't nowhere around when you was born. Your mama didn't name you nothing. The nine days wasn't up before she throwed you on the junk heap. When I got you, I named you myself on the ninth day. You named after my dead brother, Charles Breedlove, a good man. Ain't no Samson never come to no good end. Charlie didn't ask anything else. Two years later, he quit school to take a job at Tyson's Feed and Grain Store. He swept up, ran errands, weighed bags, and lifted them into the drays. Sometimes they let him ride with the dray man, a nice old man called Blue Jack. Blue used to tell him old-timey stories about how, his, how it was when the Emancipation Proclamation came, how the Black people hollered, cried, and sang, and ghost stories about how a white man cut off his wife's head and buried her in the swamp, and the headless body came out at night and went stumbling around the yard, knocking over stuff because it couldn't see, and crying all the time for a comb. They talked about the women Blue had had and the fights he'd been in when he was younger, about how he talked his way out of getting lynched once and how others hadn't. Charlie loved Blue. Long after he was a man, he remembered the good times that they had had. How on a July 4 at a church picnic, a family was about to break open a watermelon. Several children were standing around watching. Blue was hovering hovering about on a periphery of the circle, a faint smile of anticipation softening his face. The father of the family lifted the melon high over his head. His big arms looked taller than the trees to Charlie, and the melon blotted out the sun. Tall, head forward, eyes fastened on a rock, his arms higher than the pines, his head holding a melon bigger than the sun. He paused an instant to get his bearing and secure his aim. Watching the figure etched, etched against the bright blue sky, Charlie felt goose pimples popping along his arms and neck. He wondered if God looked like that. No, God was a nice old white man with long white hair, flowing white beard, and little blue eyes that looked sad when people died and mean when they were bad. It must be the devil who looks like that, holding the world in his hands, ready to dash it to the ground and spill the red guts to niggers so they could eat the sweet, warm insides. If the devil did look like that, Charlie preferred him. 
He never felt anything thinking about God, but just the idea of the devil excited him and how the strong black devil was blotting out the sun and getting ready to split open the world. Far away, somebody was playing a mouth organ. The music slithered over the cane fields and into the pine grove. It spiraled around, along the tree trunks and mixed itself with the pine scent, so Charlie couldn't tell the difference between the sound and the odor that hung about the heads of the people. The man swung the melon down to the edge of a rock. A soft cry of disappointment accompanied the sound of smashed rind. The break was a bad one. The melon was jagged and chunks of rind, rind and red meat scattered on the grass. Blue jumped. Ah! he moaned. There go that heart. His voice was both sad and pleased. Everybody looked to see the big red chunk from the very center of the melon, free of the rind and sparse of seed, who had rolled a little distance from Blue's feet. He stooped to pick it up. Blood red, its plains dull and blunted with sweetness, its edges rigid with juice, too obvious, almost obscene in the joy it promised. Go ahead, Blue, the father laughed. You can have it. Blue smiled and walked away. Little children scrambled for the pieces on the ground. Women picked out the seeds for the smallest ones and broke off little bits of the meat for themselves. Blue's eye caught Charlie's. He motioned to him. Come on, boy, let's you and me eat the heart. Together, the old man and the boy sat on the grass and shared the heart of the watermelon, the nasty sweet guts of the earth. It was in the spring, a very chilly spring, that Aunt Jimmy died of peach cobbler. She went to a camp meeting that took place after a rainstorm, and the damp wood of the benches, of the benches was bad for her. For four or five days afterward, she felt poorly. Friends came to see about her. Some made chamomile tea. Others rubbed her with liniment. Miss Alice, her closest friend, read the Bible to her. She was still declining. Advice was prolific, if contradictory. Don't eat no egg. Don't eat no whites of eggs. Drink new milk. Chew on this root. Aunt Jimmy ignored all but Miss Alice's Bible reading. She nodded in drowsy appreciation at the words from First Corinthians droned over her. Sweet amens fell from her lips as she was chastised for all her sins, but her body would not respond. Finally, it was decided to fetch, to fetch Madeer. Madeer was a quiet woman who lived in a shack near the woods. She was a competitive, she was a competent midwife and decisive diagnostician. Few could remember when Medea was not around. And any illness that could not be handled by ordinary means, known cures, intuition, or endurance, the word was always, fetch Madeer. When she arrived at Aunt Jimmy's house, Charlie was amazed at the sight of her. He had always pictured her as shriveled and hunched over, for he knew she was very, very old. But Madeer loomed taller than the preacher who accompanied her. She must have been over six feet tall. Four big white knots of hair gave power and authority to her soft black face. Standing straight as a poker, she seemed to need her hickory stick, not for support, but for communication. She tapped it lightly on the floor as she looked down at Aunt Jimmy's wrinkled face. She stroked the knob with the thumb of her right hand while she ran her left one over Aunt Jimmy's body. The backs of her long fingers she placed on the patient's cheek, then placed her palm on the forehead. She ran her fingers through the sick woman's hair, lightly scratching the scalp and then looking at what the fingernails revealed. She lifted on Jimmy's hand and looked closely at it. 
fingernails, black skin, the flesh of the palm she pressed with three finger with three fingertips. Later, she put her ear on Aunt Jimmy's chest and stomach to listen. At Madeira's request, the woman pulled the slop jar from under the bed to show the stools. Madeira tapped her stick while looking at them. Bury the slop jar and everything in it, she said to the woman. To Aunt Jimmy, she said, you done caught cold in your womb. Drink pot liquor and nothing else. Will it pass? Aunt Jimmy asked. Is all going to be is all is it all going to be all right? I reckon. Madeira turned and left the room. The preacher put her in his buggy to take her home. That evening, the women brought bowls of pot liquor from black-eyed peas, from mustards, from cabbage, from kale, from collards, from turnips, from beets, from green beans, even the juice from a boiling hog jowl. Two evenings later, Aunt Jimmy had gained much strength. When Miss Alice and Mrs. Gaines stopped in to check on her, they remarked on her improvement. The three women sat talking about various miseries and that they had had their cure or abatement. What had helped? Over and over again, they returned to Aunt Jimmy's condition, repeating its cause, what could have been done to prevent the misery from taking hold, and Madeira's infallibility. Their voices blended into a threnody of nostalgia about pain, rising and falling, complex in harmony, uncertain in pitch, but constant in the recitative of pain. They hugged the memories of illnesses to their bosom. They licked their lips and clucked their tongues in fond remembrance of pain they had endured. Childbirth, rheumatism, croup, sprains, backaches, piles. All of the bruises they had collected from moving about the earth, harvesting, cleaning, hoisting, pitching, stooping, kneeling, picking, always with young ones underfoot. But they had been young once. The odor of their armpits and haunches had mingled into a lovely musk. Their eyes had been furtive, their lips relaxed, and the delicate turn of their heads on their slim black necks had been nothing like other than a doze. Their laughter had been more touched than sound. Then they had grown, edging into life from the back door, becoming. Everybody in the world was in a position to give them orders. White women said, do this. White children said, give me that. White men said, come here. Black men said, lay down. The only people they did not take orders from were black children and each other, but they took all of that and recreated it in their own image. They ran the houses of white people and knew it. When white men beat their men, they cleaned up the blood and went home to receive abuse from the victim. They beat their children with one hand and stole for them with the other. The hands that fell trees also cut umbilical cords. The hands that wrung the necks of chickens and butchered hogs also nudged African violets into bloom. The arms that loaded sheaves, bales, and sacks rocked babies into sleep. They patted biscuits into flaky ovals of innocence and shrouded the dead. They plowed all day and came home to nestle like plums under the limbs of their men. The legs that straddled a mew's back were the same ones that straddled their men's hips, and the difference was all the difference there was. Then they were old. Their bodies honed, their odor sour. Squatting in a cane field, stooping in a cotton field, kneeling by a riverbank, they had carried a world on their heads. They had never given over the lives of their own children and tendered their grandchildren. 
With relief, they wrapped their heads in rags and their breasts in flannel, eased their feet into felt. They were through with lust and lactation, beyond tears and terror. They alone could walk the roads of Mississippi, the lanes of Georgia, the fields of Alabama unmolested. They were old enough to be irritable when and where they chose, tired enough to look forward to death, disinterested enough to accept the idea of pain while ignoring the presence of pain. They were, in fact, at least free. And the lives of these old black women were synthesized in their eyes, a pure ray of tragedy and humor, wickedness and serenity, truth and fantasy. They chattered far into the night. Charlie listened and grew sleepy. The lullaby of grief enveloped him, rocked him, and at last numbed him. In his sleep, the foul odor of an old woman's stools turned into the healthy smell of horseshit and the voices of the three women were muted into the pleasant voices of a mouth organ. He was aware in his sleep of being curled up in a chair, his hands tucked between his thighs. In a dream, his penis changed into a long hickory stick, and the hands caressing it were the hands of Madeer. On a wet Saturday night before Aunt Jimmy felt strong enough to get out of bed, Essie Foster brought her a peach cobbler. The old lady ate a piece, and the next morning, when Charlie went to empty the slop jar, she was dead. Her mouth was slackened. Oh, and her hands, those long fingers with a man's hard nails, having done their laying by, could now be dainty on the sheet. One open eye looked at him as if to say, Mind how you take hold of that jar, boy. Charlie stared back, unable to move until a fly netted on the corner of her mouth. He fanned it away angrily, looked back at the eye, and did its bidding. Aunt Jimmy's funeral was the first Charlie had ever attended. As a member of the family, one of the bereaved, he was the object of a great deal of attention. The ladies had cleaned the house, aired everything out, notified everybody, and stitched together what looked like a white wedding dress for Aunt Jimmy, a maiden lady, to wear when she met Jesus. They even produced a dark suit, white shirt, and tie for Charlie. The husband of one of them cut his hair. He was enclosed in fastidious tenderness. Nobody talked to him, that is. They treated him like the child he was, never engaging him in serious conversation, but they anticipated wishes he never had. Meals appeared, hot water for the wooden tub, clothes laid out. At the wake, he was allowed to fall asleep and arms carried him to bed. On the third day after the death, the day of the funeral, did he have to share the spotlight? Aunt Jimmy's people came from nearby towns and farms, her brother O.V., his children and wife, and lots of cousins. But Charlie was still the major figure because he was Jimmy's boy, the last thing she loved, and the one who found her. The solicitude of the women, the head pats of the man, pleased Charlie, and the creamy conversations fascinated him. What'd she die from? Essie's pie? Don't say! Uh-huh. She was doing fine. I saw her the very day before. Said she wanted me to bring her some black thread and patch some things up for the boy. I should have known just from her wanting black thread. That was a sign. Sure was. Just like Emma. Remember? She kept asking for thread. Dropped dead that very evening. Yeah. Well, she was determined to have it. Kept on reminding me. I told her I had some to home, but no, she wanted it new. So I sent little June to get some at that very morning when she was laying dead. I was just fixing to bring it over, along with a piece of sweetbread. 
You know how she craved my sweet bread. Sure did. Always bragged on it. She was a good friend to you. I believe it. Well, I had got, I had no more got my clothes on when Sally bust in the door hollering how Charlie here had been over to Miss Alice saying she was dead. You could have knocked me over, I tell you. Guess Essie feels mighty bad. Oh, Lord, yes. But I told her the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Wasn't her fault none. She makes good peach pies. But she bound to believe it was the pie did it. And I spec she right. Well, she shouldn't worry herself none about that. She was just doing what we all would have done. Yeah, because I was sure wrapping up that sweet bread and, and that could have done it too. I doubt that. Sweet bread is pure, but a pie is the worst thing to ever give somebody ailing. I'm surprised Jimmy didn't know better. If she did, she wouldn't let on. She would have tried to please. You know how she was. So good. I'll say. Did she leave anything? Not even a pocket handkerchief. The house belongs to some white folks in Clarksville. Oh, yeah? I thought she owned it. May have at one time, but not no more. I hear the insurance folks been down talking to her brother. How much do it come to? $85, I hear. That's all? Can she get in the ground on that? Don't see how. When my daddy died last year this April, it cost it $150. Of course, we had to have everything just so. Now, Jimmy's people may have all to may all have to chip in. That undertaker that lays out black folks ain't none too cheap. Seems a shame. She's been paying on that insurance all her life. Don't I know? Well, about that boy, what he gonna do? Well, can't nobody find that mama, so Jimmy's brother gonna take him back to his place. They say he got a nice place, inside toilet and everything. That's nice. He seems like a good Christian man, and that boy needs a man's hand. What time's the funeral? Two o'clock. She ought to be in the ground by four. Where's the banquet? I heard Essie wanted it at her house. No, it's at Jimmy's. Her brother wanted it so. Well, it will be a big one. Everybody liked old Jimmy. Sure will miss her in the pew. The funeral banquet was a peal of joy after the thunderous beauty of the funeral. It was like a street tragedy with spontaneity tucked softly into the corners of a highly formal structure. The deceased was the tragic hero, the survivors, the innocent victims. There was the omnipresence of the deity, strophe and anti-strophe of the chorus of mourners led by the preacher. There was grief over the waste of life, the stunned wonder at the ways of God, and the restoration of order in nature at the graveyard. Thus, the banquet was the exultation, the harmony, the acceptance of physical frailty, joy in the termination of misery, laughter, relief, a steep hunger for food. Charlie had not yet fully realized his aunt was dead. Everything was so interesting. Even at the graveyard, he felt nothing but curiosity, and when his turn and when his turn had come to view the body at the church, he had even put his hand out to touch the corpse to see if it were really ice cold like everybody said. But he drew his hand back quickly. Aunt Jimmy looked so private, and it seemed wrong somehow to disturb that privacy. He had trudged back to his pew dry-eyed amid tearful shrieks and shouts of others, wondering if he should try to cry. Back in his house, he was free to join in the gaiety and enjoy what he really felt, a kind of carnival spirit. He ate greedily and felt good enough to try to get to know his cousins. There were some questions, according to the adults, as to whether they were his real cousins or not, 
since Jimmy's brother, O.V., was only a half-brother, and Charlie's mother had been the daughter of Jimmy's sister, but that sister was from the second marriage of Jimmy's father, and O.V. was from the first marriage. One of these cousins interest, interested Charlie in particular. He was about 15 or 16 years old. Charlie went outside and found the boy standing with some others near the tub where Aunt Jimmy used to boil her clothes. He ventured a tentative, hey, they responded with another. The 15-year-old named Jake offered Charlie a rolled up cigarette. Charlie took it, but when he held the cigarette at arm's length, and stuck the tip of it into the match flame, instead of putting it in his mouth and drawing on it, they laughed at him. Shamefaced, he threw the cigarette down. He felt it important to do something to reinstate himself with Jake. So when he asked Charlie if he knew any girls, Charlie said, sure. All the girls Charlie knew were at the banquet, and he pointed to a cluster of them standing, hanging, draping on the back porch. Darlene, too. Charlie hoped Jake wouldn't pick her. Let's go and let's get some and walk around, said Jake. The two boys sauntered over to the porch. Charlie didn't know how to begin. Jake wrapped his legs around the rickety porch rail and just sat there staring off into space as though he had no interest in them at all. He was letting them look him over and guardedly evaluating them in return. The girls pretended they didn't see the boys and kept on chattering. Soon their talk got sharp. The gentle teasing they had been engaged in with each other changed to bitchiness, a serious kind of making fun. That was Jake's clue. The girls were reacting to him. They had gotten a whiff of his manhood and were shivering for a place in his attention. Jeff left the, Jake left the porch rail and walked right up to a girl named Suki, the one who had been most bitter in her making fun. Want to show me round? He didn't even smile. Charlie held his breath, waiting for Suki to shut Jake up. She was good at that and well known for her sharp tongue. To his enormous surprise, she readily agreed and even lowered her lashes. Taking courage, Charlie turned to Darlene and said, Come on along, we're just going down to the gully. He waited for her to screw up her face and say no, or what for, or some such thing. His feelings about her were mostly fear. Fear that she would not like him and fear that she would. His second fear materialized. She smiled and jumped down the three leaning steps to join him. Her eyes were full of compassion and Charlie remembered that he was the bereaved. If you want to, she said, but not too far. Mama said we got to leave early. It's getting dark. The four of them moved away. Some of the boys had come to the porch and were about to begin that partly hostile, partly indifferent, partly desperate mating dance. Suki, Jake, Darlene, and Charlie walked through several backyards until they came to an open field. They ran across it and came to a dry riverbed lined with green. The object of the walk was a wild vineyard where the muscadine grew. Too new, too tight, to have much sugar, they were eaten anyway. None of them wanted, not then, the grape's easy relinquishing of its dark juice, the restraint the holding off, the promise of sweetness that had yet to unfold, excited them more than full ripeness would have done. At last, their teeth were on edge, and the boys diverted themselves by pelting the girls with the grapes. Their slim black boy wrists made G-clefts in the air as they executed the tosses. The chase took Charlie and Darlene away from the lip of the gully, and when they paused for breath, Jake and Suki were nowhere in sight. Darlene, Darlene's white cotton dress was stained with juice. 
Her big blue hair bow had come undone and the sundown breeze was picking it up and fluttering about her head. They were out of breath and sank down in the green and purple grass on the edge of the pine woods. Charlie lay on his back, panting, his mouth full of the taste of muscadine, listening to the pine needles rustling loudly in their anticipation of rain. The smell of promised rain, pine, and muscadine made him giddy. The sun had gone and pulled away its shreds of light, turning his head to see where the moon was. Charlie caught sight of Darlene in moonlight behind him. She was huddled into a D, arms encircling drawn-up knees on which she rested her head. Charlie could see her bloomers and the muscles of her young thighs. We'd better get back, he said. Yeah. She stretched her legs flat on the ground and began to retie her hair ribbon. Mama gonna whoop me. No, she ain't. Uh-huh, she told me I would if I get dirty. You ain't dirty. I am too. Look at that. She dropped her hands from the ribbon from the ribbon and smoothed out a place on her dress where the great stains were heaviest. Charlie felt sorry for her. It was just as much his fault. Suddenly, he realized that Aunt Jimmy was dead, for he missed the fear of being whooped. There was nobody to do it except Uncle O.V., and he was the bereaved, too. Let me, he said. He rose to his knees, facing her, and tried to tie her ribbon. Darlene put her hands under her open shirt and rubbed the damp, tight skin. When he looked at her in surprise, she stopped and laughed. He smiled and continued knotting the bow. She put her hands back under his shirt. Holding still, he said, How I gonna get this? She tickled his ribs with her fingertips. He giggled and grabbed his rib cage. They were on top of each other in a moment, the cork screwing her hands into his clothes. He was returning the play, digging into the neck of her dress and then under her dress. When he got his hands into her bloomer, she suddenly stopped laughing and looked serious. Charlie, frightened, stopped laughing and looked serious. He examined her, then with his fingers, and he kissed his face and mouth. Charlie found her muscadine-lipped mouth distracting. Darlene released his head, shifting her body, and pulled down her pants. After some trouble with the buttons, Charlie dropped his pants down to his knees. Their bodies began to make sense to him and it was not as difficult as he had thought it would be. She moaned a little, but the excitement collecting inside him made him close his eyes and regard her moans as no more than pine size over his head. Just as he felt an explosion threatened, Darlene froze and cried out. He thought he had heard her, but when, she, but when he looked at her face, she was staring wildly at somebody over his shoulder. He jerked around. There stood two white men, one with a spirit lamp, the other with a flashlight. There was no mistake about their being white. He could smell it. Charlie jumped, trying to kneel, stand, and get his pants up all in one motion. The men had long guns. He he he! The snicker was long, and as and the snicker was a long asthmatic cough. The other raised the flashlight all over Charlie and Darlene. Get on with it, nigger," said the flashlight one, sir said Charlie, trying to find a buttonhole. I said, get on with it and make it good, nigger, make it good. There was no place for Charlie's eyes to go. They slid about furtively, searching for shelter, while his body remained paralyzed. The flashlight man left, lifted his gun down from his shoulder, and Charlie heard the clop of metal. 
he dropped back to his knees. Darlene had her head averted, her eyes staring out of the lamplight into the surrounding darkness and looking almost unconcerned, as though they had no part in the drama taking place around them. With a violence born of total helplessness, he pulled her dress up, lowered his trousers and underwear. Hee hee hee! Darlene put her hands over her face as Charlie began to stimulate what had gone on before. He could do no more than make-believe. The flashlight made a moon on his behind. He, 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 come on, coon, faster. You ain't doing nothing for her. Charlie, moving faster, looked at Darlene. He hated her. He almost wished he could do it hard, long, and painfully. He hated her so much. The flashlight wormed its way into his guts and turned the sweet taste of muscadine into rotten, fetid bile. He stared at Darlene at Darlene's hands covering her face in the moon and lamplight. They looked like baby claws. He, he, he. Some dogs howled. That's them. That's them. I know that's old honey. Yep, said the spirit lamp. Come on. The flashlight turned away and one of them whistled to honey. Wait, said the spirit lamp. The coon ain't comed yet. Well, we have to come on. Well, he have to come on his own time. Good luck, coon baby. They crushed the pine needles underfoot. Charlie could hear them whistling for a long time, and then the dog's answer was no longer a howl, but a warm, excited yelp of recognition. Charlie raised himself and in silence buttoned his trousers. Darlene did not move. Charlie wanted to strangle her, but instead he touched her leg with his foot. We got to get, girl. Come on. She reached for her underwear with her eyes closed and could not find them. The two of them padded about in the moonlight for the panties. When she found them, she put them on with the movements of an old woman. They walked away from the pine woods toward the road, he in front, she plopping along behind. It started to rain. That's good, Charlie thought. It will explain away our clothes. When they got back to the house, some ten or twelve guests were still there. Jake was gone, sulky too. Some people had gone back for more helpings of food, potato pie, ribs. All were engrossed in early night reminiscences about dreams, figures, premonitions. Their stuffed comfort was narcotic and had produced recollections and fabrications and hallucinations. Charlie and Darlene's entrance, entrance produced only a mild stir. Y'all soaked, ain't you? Darlene's mother was only vaguely fussy. She had eaten and drunk too much. Her shoes were under her chair, and the side snaps of her dress were opened. Girl, come on in here. Thought I told you. Some of the guests thought they would wait for the rain to slacken. Others who had come in wagons thought they'd best leave now. Charlie went into the little storeroom, which had been made into a bedroom for him. Three infants were sleeping on his cot. He took off his rain and pine-soaked clothes and put on his coveralls. He didn't know where to go. Aunt Jimmy's room was out of the question, and Uncle O.V. and his wife would be using it later anyway. He took a quilt from the trunk, spread it on the floor, and lay down. Somebody was brewing coffee, and he had a sharp craving for it just before falling asleep. The next day was cleaning out day, settling accounts, distributing Aunt Jimmy's goods. Mouths were set in downward crescents, eyes veiled, feet tentative. Charlie floated about aimlessly, doing chores as he was told. All the glamour and warmth the adults had given him on the previous day were replaced by a sharpness that agreed with his mood. He could think only of the flashlight, 
the muscadines in Darlene's hands, and when he was not thinking of them, the vacancy in his head was like the space left by a newly pulled tooth, still conscious of the rottenness that had once filled it. Afraid of running into Darlene, he would not go far from the house, but neither could he endure the atmosphere of his dead aunt's house. The picking through her things, the comments on the condition of her goods, sullen, irritable, and cult he, sullen, irritable, he cultivated his hatred of Darlene. Never did he once consider directing his hatred toward the hunters. Such an emotion would have destroyed him. They were big, white, armed men. He was small, black, helpless. His subconscious knew what his conscious mind did not guess, that hating them would have consumed him, burned him up like a piece of soft coal, leaving only flakes of ash and a question mark of smoke. He was in time to discover that hatred of white men, but not now, not in impotence, but later when the hatred could find sweet expression. For now, he hated the one who had created the situation, the one who bore witness to his failure, his impotence, the one whom he had not been able to protect, to spare, to cover from the round moon glow of flashlight, the hee-hees. He recalled Darlene's dripping hair ribbon flapping against her face as they walked back in silence in the rain. The loathing, the loathing that galloped through him made him tremble. He, there, no, there was no one to talk to. Old Blue was too drunk often, too drunk these days to make sense. Besides, Charlie doubted if he would reveal his name to Blue. He would have to lie to, he would have to lie a little to tell Blue, Blue the woman killer. It seemed to him that lonely was much better than alone. The day Charlie's uncle was ready to leave, when everything was packed, when the quarrels about who gets what had settled down to a sticking gravy on everybody's tongue, Charlie sat on the back porch, waiting. It had occurred to him that Darlene might be pregnant. It was a wildly irrational, completely uninformed idea, but the fear it produced was complete enough. He had to get away, never mind the fact that he was leaving that very day. A town or two away was not far enough, especially since he did not like or trust his uncle, and Darlene's mother could surely find him, and Uncle Ovi would turn him over to her. Charlie knew it was wrong to run out on a pregnant girl, and recalled with sympathy that his father had done just that. Now he understood. He knew then what he must do. Find his father. His father would understand, and Jimmy had said he had gone to Macon. With no more thought than a chick leaving its shell, he stepped off the porch. He had gotten a little way when he remembered the treasure. Aunt Jimmy had left something, and he had forgotten all about it. In a stove flue, no longer used, she had hidden a little meal bag, which she called her treasure. He slipped into the house and found the room empty. Digging into the flue, he encountered webs and soot, and then the soft bag. He sorted the money, fourteen one-dollar bills, two two-dollar bills, and lots of silver change. Twenty-three dollars in all. Surely that would be enough to get to Macon. What a good, strong-sounding word, Macon. Running away from home for Georgia, a black boy was running away from home for a Georgia black boy was not a great problem. You just sneaked away and started walking. When night came, you slept in a barn. If there were no dogs, a cane field, or an empty sawmill, you ate from the ground and bought root beer and licorice in a little and, and licorice in little country stores. There was always an easy tale of woe to tell, inquiring black adults and whites didn't care unless they were looking for sport. When he was several days away, he could go back. 
he could go to the back door of nice houses and tell the black cook or white mistress that he wanted a job weeding, plowing, picking, cleaning, and that he lived nearby. A week or more there, and he could take off. He lived his way through the turn of summer, and the only and only the following October did he reach a town big enough to have a regular bus station. Dry-mouthed with excitement and apprehension, he went to the colored side of the counter to buy his ticket. How much to make him, sir? Eleven dollars. Five fifty for children under twelve. Charlie had twelve dollars and four cents. How old you be? Just on twelve, sir, but my mama only give me ten dollars. You just about the biggest twelve I ever see. Please, sir, I got to get to Macon. My mama's sick. Thought you said your mama give you the ten dollars. That's my play mama. My real mama is in Macon, sir. I reckon I knows a lying nigger when I sees one, but just in case you ain't, just in case one of them mammies is really dying and wants to see her little old smoke before she meets her maker, I gon' do it. Charlie heard nothing. The insults were part of the nuances of life, like lice. He was happier than he had ever remembered being, except that time with Blue and his watermelon. The bus wasn't leaving for four hours, and the minutes of those hours struggled like gnats on flypaper, dying slow, exhausted with the fight to stay alive. Charlie was afraid to stir, even to relieve himself. The, bu the bus might leave while he was gone. Finally, Rigid with constipation, he boarded the bus to Macon. He found a window seat in the back all to himself, and all of Georgia slid before his eyes until the sun shrugged out of sight. Even in the dark, he hungered to see, and only after the fiercest fight to keep his eyes open did he fall asleep. When he awoke, it was very well into the day, and a fat black lady was nudging him with a biscuit gashed with cold bacon. With the taste of bacon still in his teeth, they sidled into Macon. At the end of the alley, he could see men clustered like grapes. One large whooping voice spiraled over the heads of the bended forms, the kneeling forms, the leaning forms, all intent on one ground spot. As he came closer, he inhaled a rife and stimulating man smell. The men were gathered, just as the man in the pool hall had said, for and about dice and money. Each figure was decorated some way with the slight pieces of green. Some of them had separated their money, folded the bills around their fingers, clenched the fingers into fists, so the neat ends of the money stuck out in a blend of daintiness and violence. Others had stacked their bills, creased them down the middle, and held the wad as though they were about to deal cards. Still, others had left their money in loosely crumpled balls. One man had money sticking out from under his cap. Another stroked his bills with a thumb and forefinger. There was more money in those black hands than Charlie had ever seen before. He shared their excitement, and the dry-mouthed apprehension on meeting his father gave way to the saliva flow of excitement. He glanced at their faces, looking for the one who might be his father. How would he know him? Would he look like a larger version of himself? At that moment, Charlie could not remember what his own self looked like. He only knew he was 14 years old, black, and already six feet tall. He searched the faces and saw only eyes, pleading eyes, cold eyes, eyes gone flat with malice, others laced with fear, all focused on the movement of a pair of dice that one man was throwing, snatching up, and throwing again. Chanting a litany to which the others responded, rubbing the dice as though they were two hot coals, he whispered to them, 
Then with a whoop, the cubes, the cubes flew from his hand to a chorus of amazements and disappointments. Then the thrower scooped up money and some shouted, take it and crawl, you water dog, you, the best I know. There was some laughter and a noticeable release of tension during which some men exchanged money. Charlie tapped, Charlie tapped an old white-haired man on the back. Can you tell me, is Samson Fuller around here somewhere? Fuller? The name was familiar to the man's tongue. I don't know. He'd be somewhere. There he is in the brown jacket. The man pointed. A man in a light brown jacket stood at the far end of the group. He was gesturing in a quarrelsome, agitated manner with another man. Both of them had folded their faces in anger. Charlie edged around to where they stood, hardly believing he was at the end of his journey. There was his father, a man like any other man, but there indeed were his eyes, his mouth, his whole head. His shoulders lurked beneath that jacket, his voice, his hands, all real. They existed, really existed somewhere, right here. Charlie had always thought of his father as a giant of a man, so when he was very close, it was with a shock that he discovered that he was taller than his father. In fact, he was staring at a balding spot on his father's head, which he suddenly wanted to stroke. While thus fascinated by the pitiable clean space hedged around by, neglect, by neglected tufts of wool, the man turned a hard belligerent face to him. What you want, boy? Um, I mean, is you Samson Fuller? Who sent you? Huh? You Melba's boy? No, sir. I'm Charlie blinked. He could not remember his mother's name. He had never known it. What could he say? Whose boy was he? He couldn't say, I'm your boy. That sounded disrespectful. The man was impatient. Something wrong with your head? Who told you to come after me? Nobody. Charlie's hands were sweating. The man's eyes frightened him. I just thought, I mean, I was just wandering around and uh, my name is Charlie. But Fuller had turned back to the game that was about to begin anew. He bent down to toss a bill on the ground and waited for a throw. When it was gone, he stood up and in a vexed and whiny voice shouted at Charlie, tell that bitch she, she get her money. Now get the fuck out of my face. Charlie was a long time picking his foot up from the ground. He was trying to back up and walk away. Only with extreme effort could he get the first muscle to cooperate. When he did, he walked back up the alley out of his shade toward the blazing light of the street. As he emerged into the sun, he felt something in his legs give way. An orange crate with a picture of clasping hands pasted on its side, was upended on the sidewalk. Charlie sat down on it. The sun dropped like honey on his head. A horse-drawn fruit wagon went by, its driver singing, Fresh from the vine, sweet as sugar, red as wine. Noises seemed to increase in volume. The click-clock of the woman's heels, the laughter of idling men in doorways. There was a streetcar somewhere. Charlie sat. He knew if he was very still, he would be all right. But then the trace of pain edged his eyes, and he had to use everything to send it away. If he was very still, he thought, and kept his eyes on one thing, the tears would not come. So he sat in the dripping honey sun, pulling every nerve and muscle into service to stop the fall of water from his eyes. While straining in this way, focusing every urge of energy on his eyes, his bowels suddenly opened up and before he could realize what he knew, liquid stews were running down his legs. At the mouth of the valley where his father was, on an orange crate, in the sun, 
on a street full of grown men and women, he had soiled himself like a baby. In a panic, he wondered where, where should he wait? Not moving until nighttime? No, his father would surely emerge and see him and laugh. Oh, Lord, he would laugh. Everybody would laugh. There was only one thing to do. Charlie ran down the street, aware only of silence. People's mouths moved, their feet moved. A car jugged by, but with no sound. A door slammed in perfect soundlessness. His own feet made no sound. The air seemed to strangle him, hold him back. He was pushing through a world of invisible pine sap that threatened to smother him. Still he ran, seeing only silent moving things, until he came to the end of buildings, the beginning of open space, and he saw the Akamolji River winding ahead. He scooted down the gravelly slope to a pier jutting out over the hollow water. Following the deepest shadow under the pier, he crouched in it behind one of the posts. He remained knotted there in fetal position, paralyzed, his fists covering his eyes for a long time. No sound, no sight, only darkness and heat, and the press of his knuckles and his eyelids. He even forgot his messed up trousers. Evening came. The dark, the warmth, the quiet enclosed Charlie like the skin and flesh of an elderberry protecting its own seed. Charlie stirred. The ache in his head was all he felt. Soon, the bright bits of glass, the events of that afternoon, cut into him. And first he saw only money and black fingers. Then he thought he was sitting on an uncomfortable chair. But when he looked, it turned out to be the head of a man, a head with a ball spot the size of an orange. When he finally, when finally these bits merged into full memory, Charlie began to smell himself. He stood up and found himself weak, trembling, and dizzy. He leaned for a moment on the pier post, then took off his pants, underwear, socks, and shoes. He rubbed handfuls of dirt on his shoes, then he crawled to the river's edge. He had to find the water's beginning with his hands, for he could not see it clearly. Slowly, he swirled his clothes in the water and rubbed them until he thought they were clean. Back near his post, he took off his shirt and wrapped it around his waist, then spread his trousers and underwear on the ground. He squatted down and picked at the rotted wood of the pier. Suddenly, he thought of his Aunt Jimmy, her asafoetida bag, her four gold teeth, and the purple rag she wore around her head. With the longing that almost split him open, he thought of her handing him a bit of smoked hock out of her dish. He remembered just how she'd held it, clumsy-like, in three fingers with so much affection, no words, just picking up a bit, of me a bit of meat and holding it out to him. And then the tears rushed down his cheeks to make a bouquet under his chin. Three women are leaning out of two windows. They see the long, clean neck of a new young boy and call to him. He goes to where they are. Inside, it is dark and warm. They give him lemonade in a mason jar. As he drinks, their eyes float up to him through the bottom of the jar, through the slick, sweet water. They give him back his manhood, which he takes aimlessly. The pieces of Charlie's life could become coherent only in the head of a musician. Only those who talk their talk through the gold of curved metal, or the touch of black and white rectangles and taut skins and strings echoing from wooden corridors, could give true form to his life. Only they would know how to connect the heart of a red watermelon to the asafoetida bag, to the muscadine, to the flashlight on his behind, to the fist of money, to the lemonade in a mason jar, to a man called Blue, and come up with what 
all of that meant and joy and pain and anger and love and give it its final and pervading ache of freedom. Only a musician would know, without even knowing that he knew that Charlie was free, dangerously free, free to feel whatever he felt, fear, guilt, shame, love, grief, pity, free to be tender or violent or to whistle or to weep, free to sleep in doorways or between the white sheets of a singing woman, feel to, free to take a job, free to leave it. He could go to jail and not feel imprisoned for he had already seen the furtiveness in the eyes of his jailer, free to say, no, sir, and smile for he had already killed three white men, free to take a woman's insults for his body had already conquered hers, free even to knock her head, free even to knock her in the head, for he had already cradled that head in his arms, free to be gentle when she was sick, or mop her floor, for she knew what and where his maleness was. He was free to drink himself into silly helplessness, for he had already been a gandy dancer, done thirty days on a chain gang, and picked a woman's bullet out of the calf of his leg. He was free to live his fantasies and free to even die, and how and when and the how and when of which held no interest for him. In those days, Charlie was truly free, abandoned and a junk heap by his mother, rejected for a crap game by his father. There was nothing more to lose. He was alone with his own perceptions and appetites, and they alone interested him. It was in this godlike state that he met Pauline Williams. And it was Pauline, or rather marrying her, that did it for him what the flashlight did not do. The constantness, varietylessness, the sheer weight of sameness drove him to despair and froze his imagination. To be required to sleep with the same woman forever was a curious and unnatural idea to him. To be expected to dredge up enthusiasm for old acts and routine ploys? He wondered at the arrogance of the female. When he had met Pauline in Kentucky, she was hanging over a fence, scratching herself with a broken foot. The neatness, the charm, the joy he awakened in her made him want to nest with her. He had yet to discover what destroyed that desire, but he did not dwell on it. He thought rather of what had happened to the curiosity he used to feel. Nothing, nothing interested him now. Not himself, not other people. Only in drink was there some break, some floodlight, and when that closed... There was oblivion, but the aspect of married life that dumbfounded him and rendered him totally dysfunctional was the appearance of children. Having no idea of how to raise children and having never watched any parent raise himself, he could not even comprehend what such a relationship should be. Had he been interested in the accumulation of things, he could have thought of them as his material heirs. He had need had he needed to prove himself to some nameless others, he could have he could have wanted them to excel in his own image and for his own sake. Had he not been alone in the world since he was thirteen, knowing only a dying old woman who felt who he felt responsible for and felt responsible for him, but whose age, sex, and interests were so remote from his own, he might have felt a stable connection between himself and the children. As it was, he reacted to them and his reactions were based on what he felt at the moment. So it was on a Saturday afternoon, in the thin light of spring, he staggered home, reeling drunk, and saw his daughter in the kitchen. She was washing dishes, her small back hunched over the sink. Charlie saw her dimly and could not tell what he saw or what he felt. Then he became aware that he was uncomfortable, 
Next, he felt the discomfort dissolve into pleasure. The sequence of his emotions was revulsion, guilt, pity, then love. His revulsion was a reaction to her young, helpless, hopeless presence. Her black hunch, her back hunched that way, her head to one side as though crouching from a permanent and unrelieved blow. Why did she have to look so whipped? She was a child, unburdened. Why wasn't she happy? She, the, the clear statements of her misery was an accusation. He wanted to break her neck, but tenderly. Guilt and impotence arose in a bilious duet. What could he do for her, ever? What could he give her, say to her? What could a burned-out black man say to the hunched back of his 11-year-old daughter? If he looked into her face, he would see those haunted, loving eyes. The hauntedness would irritate him. The love would move him to fury. How dare she love him? Hadn't she any sense at all? What was he supposed to do about that? Return it? How? What could his calloused hands produce to make her smile? What of his knowledge of the world and of life could be useful to her? What could his heavy arms and befuddled brain accomplish that would earn him his own respect, that would in turn allow him to accept her love? His hatred of her slimed in his stomach and threatened to become vomit. But just before the puke moved from anticipation to sensation, she shifted her weight and stood on one foot scratching the back of her calf with her toe. It was a quiet and pitiful gesture. Her hands were going around and round in a frying pan, scraping flecks of black into cold, greasy dishwater. The timid, tucked-in look of the scratching toe, that was what Pauline was doing the first time he saw her in Kentucky. Leaning over a fence, standing, staring at nothing much in particular, the creamy toe of her bare foot scratching a velvet leg. It was such a small and simple gesture, but it filled him then with a wondering softness, not the usual lust to part tight legs with his own, but a tenderness, a protectiveness, a desire to cover her foot with his hand and gently nibble away the itch from the calf with his teeth. He did it then and started Pauline into laughter. He did it now. The tenderness welled up in him and he sank to his knees, his eyes on the floor, his eyes on the foot of his daughter, crawling on all fours toward her. He raised his hand and caught the foot and, and an upward stroke. Piccola lost her balance and was about to careen on the floor. Charlie raised his other hand to her hips to save her from falling. He put his head down and nibbled at the back of her leg. His, his mouth trembled at the firm sweetness of the flesh. He closed his eyes, letting his fingers dig into her waist. The rigidness of her shocked body, the silence of her stunned throat, was better than Pauline's easy laughter had been. The confused mixture of his memories of Pauline and the doing of a wild and forbidden thing excited him, and a bolt of desire ran down his genitals, giving it length and softening the lips of his anus. Surrounding all this lust was a border of politeness. He wanted to fuck her, tenderly, but the tenderness would not hold. The tightness of her vagina was more than he could bear. His soul seemed to slip down to his guts and fly out into her, and the gigantic thrust he made into her then provoked the only sound she made, a hollow suck of air in the back of her throat, like the rapid loss of air from a circus balloon. Following the disintegration, the falling away of sexual desire, he was conscious of her wet, soapy hands on his wrists, the fingers clenching, but whether her grip was from a hopeless but stubborn struggle to be free or from some other emotion he could not tell. 
removing himself from her was so painful to him, he cut it short and snatched his genitals out of the dry harbor of her vagina. He appeared to have, she appeared to have fainted. Charlie stood up and could only see her grayish panties, so sad and limp around her ankles. Again, the hatred mixed with tenderness. The hatred would not let him pick her up. The tenderness forced him to cover her. So when the child regained consciousness, she was lying on the kitchen floor under a heavy quilt, trying to connect the pain between her legs with the face of her mother looming over her. Once... There was an old man who loved things, for the slightest contact with people produced in him a faint but persistent nausea. He could not remember when this distaste began, nor could he remember ever being free of it. As a young boy, he had been greatly disturbed by this revulsion, which others did not seem to share. But having got a fine education, he learned, among other things, the word misanthrope. Knowing his label provided him with both comfort and courage, he believed that to name an evil was to neutralize it, if not annihilate it. Then, too, he had read several books and made the acquaintance of several great misanthropes of the ages whose spiritual company soothed him and provided him with yardsticks for measuring his whims, his yearnings, and his antipathies. Moreover, he found his misanthropy an excellent means of developing character. When he subdued his revulsion and occasionally touched helped, counseled, or, befriend, or befriended somebody, he was able to think of his behavior as generous and his intentions as noble. When he was enraged by some human effort or flaw, he was able to regard himself as discriminating, fastidious, and full of nice scruples. As in the case of many misanthropes, his disdain for people led him into a profession designed to serve them. He was engaged in the line of work that was dependent solely on his ability to win the trust of others, and one in which the most intimate relationships were necessary. Having dallied with the priesthood in the Anglican church, he abandoned it to become a caseworker. Time and misfortune, however, conspired against him, and he settled finally on a profession that brought him both freedom and satisfaction. He became a reader, advisor, and interpreter of dreams. It was a profession that suited him well, his hours were his own, the competition was slight, his clientele was already persuaded and therefore manageable, and he had numerous opportunities to witness human stupidity without sharing it or being compromised by it, and to nurture his fastidiousness by viewing physical decay. Although his income was small, he had no taste for luxury, his expenses in the monastery were solidified had solidified his natural asceticism while it developed his presence for solitude. Celibate celibacy was a haven, silence a shield. All his life he had a fondness for things, not the acquisition of wealth or beautiful objects, but a genuine love of worn objects, a coffee pot that had been his mother's, a welcome mat from the door of a rooming house he once lived in, a quilt from a Salvation Army store counter, it was as though his disdain of human contact had converted itself into a craving for things humans had touched. The residue of the human spirit smeared on inanimate objects was all he could withstand of humanity. To contemplate, for example, evidence of human footsteps on the mat, absorb the smell of the quilt, and wallow in the sweet certainty that many bodies had sweated, slept, dreamed, made love, been ill, and even died under it. Whenever he went, wherever he went, he took along this 
this he took along his things and was always searching for others. This thirst for worn things led to casual but hab habitual experimentations of trash barrels and, and alleys and wastebaskets in public spaces. All in all, his personality was an arabesque, intricate, symmetrical, balanced, and tightly constructed, except for one flaw. The careful design was marred occasionally by rare but keen sexual cravings. He could have been an active homosexual but lacked the courage. Bestiality did not occur to him, and sodomy was quite out of the question, for he did not experience sustained erections and could not endure the thought of somebody else's. And besides, the one thing that disgusted him more than entering a caressing, entering and caressing a woman was caressing and being caressed by a man. In any case, his cravings, although intense, never relished physical contact. He abhorred flesh on flesh. Body odor, breath odor, breath odor overwhelmed him. The sight of dried matter in the corner of an eye, decayed or missing teeth, earwax, blackheads, moles, blisters, skin crust, all the natural excretions and protections the body was capable of disquieted him. His attentions, therefore, gradually settled on those humans and bodies who were least offensive children. And since he was too difficult to confront homosexuality, and since little boys were insulting, scary, and stubborn, he further limited his interest to little girls. They were usually manageable and frequently seductive. His sexuality was anything but lewd. His patronage of little girls smacked of innocence and was associated in his mind with cleanliness. He was what one might call a very clean old man. A cinnamon-eyed West Indian with lightly brown skin, although his given name was printed on the sign in his kitchen window and on the business cards he circulated, he was called by the townspeople Soaphead Church. No one knew where the church part came from. Perhaps somebody's recollection of his days as a guest preacher, those reverends who had been called but who had no flock or coop, and were constantly visiting other churches, sitting on the altar with the host preacher. But everybody knew that. But everybody knew what soap had meant: the tight curly hair that, the tight curly hair that took on and held a sheen and wave when pomaded with soap lather, a sort of primitive process. He had been reared in a family proud of his academic accomplishments and its mixed blood. In fact, they believed the former was based on the latter. A Sir Whitcomb, some decaying British nobleman, who chose to disintegrate under the sun, disintegrate under a sun more easeful than England's, had introduced the white strain into the family in the early 1800s. Being a gentleman by the order of the king, he had done the civilized thing for his mulatto bastard, provided it with 300 pounds sterling to the great satisfaction of the bastard's mother, who felt that fortune had smiled on her. The bastard, too, was grateful and regarded his life's goal, the hoarding of this white strain. He bestowed his favors on a 15-year-old girl of similar parentage. She, like a good Victorian parody, learned from her husband that all was worth learning to separate herself in body, mind, and spirit from all that suggested Africa, to cultivate the habits, tastes, preferences that her absent father-in-law and foolish mother-in-law would have approved. They transferred this anglophilia to their six children and 16 grandchildren, except for an occasional and unaccountable insurgent who chose a rest of black. They married up, lightening the family complexion and thinning out the family features. 
With the confidence born of a conviction of superiority, they performed well at schools. They were industrious, orderly, and energetic, hoping to prove beyond a doubt the Beyond a doubt, de Gobineau's hypothesis that all civilizations derive from the white race, that none can exist without its help, and that a society is great and brilliant only so far as it preserves blood of the noble group that created it. Thus, they were seldom overlooked by schoolmasters who recommended promising students for study abroad. The men studied medicine, law, theology, and emerged repeatedly in powerless government offices available to the native population. That they were corrupt in public and private practice, both lecherous and lascivious, and both lecherous and lascivious, was considered their noble right and thoroughly enjoyed by most of the less gifted population. As the years passed, due to the carelessness of some of the Whitcomb brothers, it became difficult to maintain their whiteness, and some distant and some not-so-distant relatives married each other. No obviously bad effects were noticed from these ill-advised unions, but one or two but one or two old maids or gardener boys marked a weakening of faculties and a disposition toward eccentricity in some of the children, some flaw outside the usual alcoholism and lechery. They blamed the flaw on the intermarriage with the family, however, not on the original genes of the decaying lord. In any case, they were flukes. No more than in any other family, to be sure, but more dangerous because more powerful. One of them was a religious fanatic who founded his own secret sect and fathered four sons, one of whom became a schoolmaster known for the precision of his justice and the control in his violence. This schoolmaster married a sweet, indolent, half-Chinese girl for whom the fatigue of bearing a son was too much. She died soon after childbirth. Her son, named Elihu Michael Whitcomb, provided the schoolmaster with ample opportunity to work out his theories of education discipline, and the good life. Little Elihu learned everything he needed to know well, particularly the fine art of self-deception. He read regularly, but understood selectively, choosing the bits and pieces of other men's ideas that supported whatever predilection he had at the moment. Thus, he chose to remember Hamlet's abuse of Ophelia, not the Christ, not, and not Christ's love of Mary Magdalene. Hamlet's frivolous politics, but not Christ's serious anarchy. He noticed Gibbon's acidity, but not his tolerance, Othello's love for the fair Desdemona, but not Iago's perverted love of Othello. The works he admired most were Dante's. Those he despised most were Dostoevsky's. For all his exposure to the best minds of the Western world, he allowed only the narrowest interpretation to touch him. He responded to his father's controlled violence by developing hard habits and a soft imagination, a hatred of and fascination with any hint of decay or disorder. At 17, however, he met his Beatrice, who was three years his senior, a lovely, laughing, big-legged girl who worked as a clerk in a Chinese department store, Velma. So strong was her affection and zest for life, she did not eliminate the frail, sickly Elihu from it. She found his fastidiousness and complete lack of humor touching and longed to introduce him to the idea of delight. He resisted the introduction, but she married him anyway, only to discover he was suffering from and enjoyed the, invinc the invincible melancholy. When she feared two months into, when she, 
pardon me, when she learned two months into the marriage how important his, his melancholy was to him, that he was very interested in altering her joy to a more academic gloom, that he equated lovemaking with communion and the Holy Grail, she simply left. She had not lived by the sea all those years, listened to the wharfman's songs all that time, to spend her life in the soundless cave of Elihu's mind. He never got over her desertion. She was to have been the answer to his unstated, unacknowledged question. Where was the life to counter the encroaching non-life? Velma was to rescue him from the non-life he had learned on the flat side of his father's belt. But he resisted her with such skill that she was finally driven out to escape the inevitable boredom produced by such a dainty life. Young Elihu was saved from visible shattering by the steady hand of his father, who reminded him of the family's reputation and Velma's questionable one. He then pursued his studies with more vigor than before and decided at last to enter the ministry. When he was advised that he had no avocation, he left the island, came to America to study the budding field of psychiatry, but the subject required too much truth too many confrontations and offered too little support to a frailing ego. He drifted into sociology, then physical therapy. This diverse education continued for six years when his father refused to support him any longer until he found himself. Elihu, not knowing where to look, was thrown back on his own devices and found himself quite unable to earn money. He began to sink into a rapidly fraying gentility, punctuated with a few of the white-collar occupations available to Black people, regardless of their noble bloodlines in America. Desk clerk at a colored hotel in Chicago. Insurance agent, traveling salesman for a cosmetics firm catering to Blacks. He finally settled in Lorraine, Ohio in 1931, palming himself off as a minister and inspiring awe with the way he spoke English. The women of the town early discovered his celibacy, and not being able to comprehend his rejection of them, decided that he was supernatural rather than unnatural. Once he understood their decision, he quickly followed through, accepting the name Soaphead Church and the role they had given him. He rented a kind of backroom apartment from a deeply religious old lady named Bertha Reese. She was clean, quiet, and very close to total deafness. The lodgings were ideal in every way but one. Bertha Reese had an old dog, Bob, who, although as deaf and quiet as she, was not clean. He slept most of his days away on the back porch, which was Elihu's entrance, the dog was too old to be of any use, and Bertha Reese had not the strength or presence of mind to care for him properly. She fed him and watered him and left him alone. The dog was mangy. His exhausted eyes ran with a sea-green matter which gnats and flies clustered around. Soaphead was revolted by Bob and wished he would hurry up and die. He regarded this wish for the dog's death as humane, for he could not bear, he told himself, to see anything suffer. It did not occur to him that he was really concerned about his own suffering, since the dog had adjusted himself to frailty and old age. Soaphead finally determined to put an end to the animal's misery, and bought some poison with which to do it. Only the horror of having to go near him had prevented Soaphead from completing his mission. He waited for rage or blinding revulsion to spur him. 
living there among his worn things, rising early every morning from dreamless sleeps, he counseled those who sought his advice. His business was dread. People came to him in dread, whispered in dread, wept and pleaded in dread, and dread was what he counseled. His business was dread. Singly, they found their way to his door, wrapped each in a shroud stitched with anger, yearning, pride, vengeance, loneliness, misery, defeat, and hunger. They asked for the simplest things, love, health, and money. Make him love me. Tell me what this dream means. Help me get rid of this woman. Make my mother give me back my clothes. Stop my left hand from shaking. Keep my baby's ghost off the stove. Break so-and-so's fix. To all of these requests, he addressed himself. His practice was to do what he was bid, not to suggest a party that perhaps the request was unfair, mean, or hopeless. With only occasional and increasingly rare encounters with the little girls he could persuade to be entertained by him, he lived rather peaceably among his things, admitting to no regrets. He was aware, of course, that something was awry in his life and all lives, but put the problem where it belonged, at the foot of the originator of life, he believed that since decay, vice, filth, and disorder were pervasive, that they must be in the nature of things. Evil existed because God had created it. He, God, had made a sloven and unforgivable error in judgment, designing an imperfect universe. Theologians justified the presence of corruption as a means by which men strove were tested in triumph, a triumph of cosmic neatness. But this neatness, the neatness of Dante, was in the orderly sectioning of segregating of all levels of evil and decay. In the world, it was not so. The most exquisite-looking lady sat on toilets, and the most dreadful-looking had pure and holy yearnings. God had done a poor job, and Soaphead suspected that he himself could not have done better. It was, in fact, a pity that the maker had not sought his counsel. Soaphead soap was reflecting once again on those thoughts once late, one late hot afternoon when he heard a tap on his door. Opening it, he saw a little girl, quite unknown to him. She was about 12 or so, he thought, and seemed to him pitifully unattractive. When he asked her what she wanted, she did not answer, but held out to him one of his cards advertising his gifts and services. If you are overcome with trouble and conditions that are not natural, I can remove them. Overcome spells, bad luck, and evil influences. Remember, I am a true spiritualist and psychic reader, born with power, and I will help you. Satisfaction in one visit. During many years of practice, I have brought together many in marriage and reunited many who were separated. If you are unhappy, discouraged, or in distress, I can help you. Does bad luck seem to follow you? Has the one you love changed? I can tell you if the one you love is true or false. If you are sick, I can show you the way to health. I can locate lost and stolen articles. Satisfaction guaranteed. Soapad Church told her to come in. What can I do for you, my child? She stood there, her hands folded across her stomach, a little protruding pot of tummy. Maybe, can you do it for me? Do what for you? I can't go to school no more, and I thought maybe you could help me. Help you how? Tell me, don't be frightened. My eyes. What about your eyes? I want them blue. Soaphead pursed his lips and let his tongue stroke a gold inlay. He thought it was at once the most fantastic and yet the most logical petition he had ever received. 
Here was an ugly little girl asking for beauty. A surge of love and understanding swept through him, but was quickly replaced by anger. Anger that he was powerless to help her. Of all the wishes people had brought him, money, love, revenge, this seemed to him the most poignant and the one most deserving of fulfillment. A little black girl who wanted to rise up out of the pit of her blackness and see the world with blue eyes. His outrage grew and felt like power. For the first time, had he really wanted the true and holy power, only the power to make others believe he had it. It seemed so sad, so frivolous, that mere mortality, not judgment, kept him from, kept him from it. Or did it? With a trembling hand, he made the sign of, of the cross over her. His flesh crawled in that hot, dim little room of worn things. He was chilled. He was chilled. I can do nothing for you, my child. I, I am not a magician. I, I work only through the Lord. He sometimes uses me to help people. All I can do is offer myself to him as the instrument through which he works. If he wants your wish granted, he will do it. So Ped walked to the window, his back to the girl. His mind raced, stumbled, and raced again. How to frame the next sentence? How to hang on to the feeling of power? His eye fell on old Bob sleeping on the porch. We must make uh, some offering, that is, some contact with nature. Perhaps some simple creature might be vehicle through which he will speak. Let us see. He knelt down at the window and moved his lips. After what seemed a suitable length of time, he rose and went to the icebox that stood near the window. From it, he removed a small packet wrapped in pinkish butcher paper. From a shelf, he took a small brown bottle and sprinkled some of its contents on the substance inside the paper. He put the packet partly opened on the table. Take this food and give it to the creature sleeping on the porch. Make sure he eats it. It will mark how well he behaves. If nothing happens, you will know that God has refused you. If the animal behaves strangely, your wish will be granted on the day following this one. The girl picked up the packet. The odor of the dark, sticky meat made her want to vomit. She put a hand on her stomach. Courage, courage, my child. These things are not granted to faint hearts. She nodded and swallowed visibly, holding down the vomit. Soaphead opened the door and she stepped over the threshold. Goodbye, God bless, he said and quickly shut the door. At the window, he stood watching her, his eyebrows pulled together in waves of compassion, his tongue fondling the worn gold in his upper jaw. He saw the girl bending down to the sleeping dog who, at her touch, opened one liquid eye, matted in the corners with what looked like green glue. She reached out and touched the dog's head, stroking him gently. She placed the meat on the floor of the porch near his nose. The odor roused him. He lifted his head and got up to smell it better. He ate it in three or four gulps. The girl stroked his head again, and the dog looked up at her with soft triangle eyes. Suddenly, he coughed, the cough of a phlegmy old man. He got to his feet. The girl jumped. The dog gagged, his mouth chomping on the air, and promptly fell down. He tried to raise himself, could not, tried again, and half fell down the steps. Choking, stumbling, he moved like a broken toy around the yard. The girl's mouth was open, a little petal of tongue showing. She made a wild, pointless gesture with one hand and then covered her mouth with both hands. She was trying not to vomit. The dog fell again, a spasm jerking his body. Then he was quiet. The girl's hands covering her mouth. 
she backed away a few feet, then turned, ran out of the yard, and down the walk. Soaphead Church went to the table. He sat down with folded hands, balancing his forehead on the balls of his thumbs. Then he rose and went to a tiny night table with a drawer from which he took paper and a fountain pen. A bottle of ink was on the same shelf that held the poison. With these things, he sat down again at the table, slowly, carefully, relishing his penmanship. He wrote the following letter. Attention to he who greatly ennobled human nature by creating it. Dear God, the purpose of this letter is to familiarize you with facts which have either escaped your notice or which you have chosen to ignore. Once upon a time, I lived greenly and youngish on one of your islands, an island of the archipelago in the South Atlantic between North and South America, enclosing the Caribbean Sea and the Gulf of Mexico, divided into the Greater Antilles, the Lesser Antilles, and the Bahama Islands. Not the windward or leeward island colonies, mark you, but within, of course, the greater of the two Antilles. While the precision of my prose may be at times laborious, it is necessary that I, did, that I identify myself to you clearly. Now, we in this colony took as our own the most dramatic and most obvious of our white masters' characteristics, which were, of course, their worst. In retaining the identity of our race, we held fast to those characteristics most gratifying to sustain and least troublesome to maintain. Consequently, we were not royal but snobbish, not aristocratic but class conscious. We believed authority was cruelty to our inferiors and education was being at school. We mistook violence for passion, indolence for leisure, and thought recklessness was freedom. We raised our children and reared our crops. We let infants grow and properly and property develop. Our manhood was defined by acquisitions, our womanhood by acquiescence, and the smell of your fruit and the labor of your days were abhorred. This morning, before the little black girl came, I cried for Velma. Oh, not aloud. There is no wine to, there is no wind to carry, bear, or even refuse to bear a sound so heavy with regret. But in my silent, alone way, I cried for Velma. You need to know about Velma to understand what I did today. She, Velma, left me the way people leave a hotel room. A hotel room is a place to be when you are doing something else. Of itself, it is of no consequence to one's major scheme. A hotel room is convenient, but its convenience is limited to the time you need it while you are in that particular town or that particular business. You hope it is comfortable, but prefer rather that it be anonymous. It is not, after all, where you live. When you no longer need it, you pay a little something for its use. Say thank you, sir. And when your business in that town is over, you go away from that room. Does anybody regret leaving a hotel room? Does anybody who has a home, a real home somewhere, want to stay there? Does anybody look back with affection or even disgust at a hotel room when they leave it? You can only love or despise whatever living was done in that room, but the room itself? But you take a souvenir. No, oh, not to remember the room, to remember rather the time and the place of your business, your adventure. What can anyone feel for a hotel room? One doesn't any more feel for a hotel room than one expects a hotel room to feel for its occupant. That heavenly, heavenly father was how she left me, or rather, she never left me because she was never ever there. 
You remember, don't you, how and of what we are made? Let me tell you now about the breasts of little girls. I apologize for the inappropriateness. Is that it? The imbalance of loving them at awkward times of day and in awkward places and the tastelessness of loving those which belong to members of my family. Do I have to apologize for loving strangers? But you too are amiss here, Lord. How, why did you allow this to happen? How is it I could lift my eyes from the contemplation of your body and fall deeply into the contemplation of theirs, the buds, the buds on some of these saplings? They were mean, you know, mean and tender, mean little buds resisting the touch, springing like rubber, but aggressive, daring me to touch, commanding me to touch, not a bit shy as you'd suppose. They stuck out at me, oh yes, at me, slender-chested, finger-chested lassies. Have you ever seen them, Lord? I mean, really seen them. One could not see them and not love them. You who made them must have considered them lovely even as an idea. How much more lovely is the manifestation of that idea? I couldn't, as you must recall, keep my hands and my mouth off them. Salt sweet, like not quite ripe strawberries covered with the light salt sweat of running days and hopping, skipping, jumping hours. The love of them, the touch, taste, and feel of them was not just an easy, luxurious human vice. They were, for me, a thing to do instead, instead of Papa, instead of the cloth, instead of Velma, and I choose not to do without them. But I didn't go into the church. At least I didn't do that. As, as to what I did do, I told people I knew all about you, that I had received your powers. It was not a complete lie, but it was a complete lie. I should never have, I admit, I should never have taken their money in exchange for well-phrased, well-placed, well-faced lies. But mark you, I hated it. Not for a moment did I love the lies or the money. But consider the woman who left the hotel room. Consider the green time, the noon time of the archipelago. Consider their hopeful eyes that were outdone only by their hoping breasts. Consider how I needed a comfortable evil to prevent my knowing what I could not bear to know. Consider how I hated and despised the money and consider, not according to my just deserts, but according to my mercy, the little black girl that came alooning at me today. Tell me, Lord, how could you leave a lass so long, so long that she could find her way to me? How could you? I weep for you, Lord, and it is because I weep for you that I had to do your work for you. Do you know what she came for? Blue eyes. New blue eyes, she said, like she was buying shoes. I'd like a new pair of blue eyes. She must have asked you for them for a very long time, and you hadn't replied. A habit, I could have told her, a long-ago habit broken for Job, but no more. She came to me for them. She had one of my cards card enclosed. By the way, I added the Mika, Ellen Elihu Micah Whitcomb, but I am spelled Sophet, but I am called Sophet Church. I cannot remember how or why I got that name, but what makes one name more person than another? Is the name the real thing then? And the person only what his name says? Is that why, to the simplest and friendliest of questions, what is your name put to you by Moses, you would not say, and said instead, I am who I am. Like Popeye, I am what I am. Afraid you were, weren't you, to give out your name? Afraid they would know the name and then know you? Then they wouldn't fear you? It's quite all right. Don't be vexed. I mean no offense. I understand. I have been a bad man too, and an unhappy man too. But someday I will die. 
I was always so kind. Why do I have to die? The little girls, the little girls are only are the only things I'll miss. Do you know that when I touched their sturdy little tits and bit them just a little, I felt I was being friendly? I didn't want to kiss their mouths or sleep in bed with them or take their child bride for my own. Playful, I felt, and friendly. Not like the newspaper said. Not like the people whispered. And they didn't mind at all. Not at all. Remember how so many of them came back? No one would even try to understand that. If I'd been hurting them, would they have come back? Two of them, Doreen and Sugar Babe, they'd come together. I gave them mints, money, and they'd eat ice cream with their legs open while I played with them. It was like a party, and there wasn't nastiness, and there wasn't any filth, and there wasn't any odor, and there wasn't any groaning, just the light white laughter of little girls and me, and there wasn't any look, any funny look, any long funny Velma look afterward. No look that makes you feel dirty afterward, that makes you want to die. With little girls, it is all clean and good and friendly. You have to understand that, Lord. You said, suffer little children to come unto me and harm them not. Did you forget? Did you forget about the children? Yes, you forgot. You let them go wanting, sit on road shoulders, crying next to their dead mothers. I've seen them charred, lame, halt. You forgot, Lord. You forgot how and when to be God. That's why I changed the little girl's black eyes for her. And I didn't touch her. Not a finger did I lay on her. But I gave her those blue eyes she wanted. Not for pleasure and not for money. I did what you did not, could not, would not do. I looked at that ugly little black girl and I loved her. I played you. And it was a very good show. I, I have caused a miracle. I gave her the eyes. I gave her her blue, blue, two blue eyes, cobalt blue a streak of it right out of your own blue heaven. No one else will see her blue eyes, but she will, and she will live happily ever after. I I have found it meet and right so to do. Now you are jealous. You are jealous of me. You see, I too have created, not aboriginally like you, but creation is a heady wine more for the taster than the brewer. Having therefore imbibed, as it were, of the nectar, I am not afraid of you, of death, not even of life. And it's all right about Velma. And it's all right about Papa. And it's all right about the greater and the lesser Antilles. Quite all right. Quite. With kindest regards, I remain your Elihu Micah Whitcomb. Sophead Church folded the sheets of paper into three equal parts and slipped them into an envelope. Although he had no seal, he longed for sealing wax. He removed a cigar box from under the bed and rummaged about in it. There were some of his most precious things, a silver of jade that had dislodged from a cufflink at the Chicago Hotel, a gold pendant shaped like a Y with a piece of coral attached to it that had belonged to the mother he never knew, four large hairpins that Velma had left on the rim of the bathroom sink, a powder blue gross grain ribbon from the head of a little girl named Precious Jewel, a black and faucet head from the sink in a jail cell in Cincinnati, two marbles he had found under a bench in Morningside Park on a very fine spring day, an old lucky hat catalog that smelled still of nut brown and mocha face powder and lemon vanishing cream. Distracted by his things, he forgot what he had been looking for. The effort to recall was too great, there was a buzzing in his head and a wash of fatigue came over him. 
He closed the box, eased himself out of the bed. He could not hear the tiny yelps of an old lady who had come out of her candy store and found the still carcass of an old dog named Bob. Summer I have only to break into the tightness of a strawberry and I see summer, its dust and lowering skies. It reminds me for a season of storms. The parched days and sticky nights are undistinguished in my mind, but the storms, the violent thunderstorms, both frightened and quenched me. But my memory is uncertain. I recall a summer storm in the town where we lived and imagine a summer day my mother knew in 1929. There was a tornado that year, she said, that blew away half of South Lorraine. I mix up her summer with my own. Biting the strawberry, thinking of storms, I see her, a slim young girl in a pink crepe dress, on one hand on her hip and the other lolls about her thigh, waiting. The wind swoops her up high above the houses and she is still standing, hand on hip, smiling. The anticipation and promise in her lolling hand are not altered, by the Holocaust. In the summer tornado of 1929, my mother's hand is unextinguished. She is strong, smiling, and relaxed while the world falls down about her. So much for memory. Public fact becomes private reality, and the seasons of a Midwestern town become amori in all of our lives. The summer was already thick when Frida and I received our seeds. We had waited since April for the magic package containing the packets and packets of seeds we were to sell for five cents each, which would entitle us to a new bicycle. We believed it and spent a major part of every day trooping out about the town selling them. Although Mama had restricted us to the homes of people she knew or the neighborhood similar to us, we knocked on all doors and floated in and out of every house that opened to us. Twelve-room houses that sheltered half as many families, smelling of grease and urine. Tiny wooden four-room houses tucked into bushes near railroad tracks. The up-over places, apartments, up-over fish markets, butcher shops, furniture stores, saloons, restaurants, tidy brick houses with flowered carpets and glass bowls with fluted edges. During that summer of the seed selling, we thought about the money thought about the seeds and listened with only half an ear to what people were saying. In the houses of people who knew us, we were asked to come in and sit, given cold water or lemonade, and while we sat there being refreshed, the people continued their conversations or went about their chores. Little by little, we began to piece a story together, a secret, awful, terrible story, and it was only after two or three vaguely overheard conversations that we realized that the story was about Piccola. Properly placed, the fragments of talk ran like this. Did you hear about that girl? What, pregnant? Yes, but guess who? Who? I don't know all these little boys. That's just it. It ain't no little boy. They say it's Charlie. Charlie? Her daddy? Uh-huh. Lord have mercy, that dirty nigger. Remember that time he tried to burn them up? I knew he was crazy for sure then. What's she gonna do? The mama? Keep on like she been, I reckon. He taken off. Country ain't gonna let her keep that baby, is they? Don't know. None of them breed love seem right anyhow. That boy is off somewhere every minute, and the girl was always foolish. Don't nobody know nothing about them anyway. Where do they come from? Or nothing. Don't seem to have no people. What you reckon made him do a thing like that? Beats me. Just nasty.
Well, they ought to take her out of school. Ought to. She carries some of the blame. Oh, come on. She ain't but 12 or so. Yeah, but you never know. How come she didn't fight him? Maybe she did. Yeah, you never know. Well, it probably won't live. They say the way her mama beat her, she lucky to be alive herself. She be lucky if she don't live. Bound to be the ugliest thing walking. Can't help but be. Ought to be a law. Two ugly people doubling up like that to make more ugly. Be better off in the ground. Well, I wouldn't worry none. It'd be a miracle if it live. Our astonishment was short-lived for it gave way to a curious kind of defensive shame. We were embarrassed for Pecola, hurt for her, and finally we just felt sorry for her. Our sorrow drove out all thoughts of the new bicycle, and I believe our sorrow was more intense because nobody else seemed to share it. They were disgusted, amused, shocked, outraged, or even excited by the story. But we listened for the one who would say, poor little girl or poor baby. But there was only head wagging where those words should have been. We looked for eyes creased with concern, but saw only veils. I thought about the baby that everybody wanted dead and saw it very clearly. It was in a dark, wet place, its head covered with great O's of wool, the black face holding, like nickels, two clean black eyes, the flared nose, kissing thick lips, and the living, breathing, silk-black skin. No synthetic yellow bangs suspended over marble blue eyes, no pinched nose and bowline mouth. More strongly than my fondness for Pecola, I felt a need for someone to want the baby to live, just to counteract the universal love of white baby dolls, Shirley Temples and Maureen Peels. And Frida must have felt the same thing. We did not think of the fact that Piccola was not married. Lots of girls had babies who were not married, and we did not dwell on the fact that the baby's father was Piccola's father too. The process of having a baby by any male was incomprehensible to us. At least she knew the father. We thought only of this overwhelming hatred for the unborn baby. We remembered Mrs. Breedlove knocking Bacola down and soothing the pink tears of the frozen baby doll that sounded like the door of our icebox. We remembered the knuckled eyes of school children under the gaze of meringue pie and the eyes of these same children when they looked at Piccola. Or maybe we didn't remember. We just knew. We had defended ourselves since memory against everything and everybody, considered all speech a code to be broken by us and all gestures subject to careful analysis. We had become headstrong, devious, arrogant. Nobody paid us any attention, so we paid very good attention to ourselves. Our limitations were not known to us, not then. Our only handicap was our size. People gave us orders because they were bigger and stronger. So it was with confidence, strengthened by pity and pride, that we decided to change the course of events and alter a human life. What we gonna do, Frida? What can we do? Miss Johnson said it would be a miracle if it lived. So let's make it a miracle. Yeah, but how? We could pray. That's not enough. Remember last time with the bird? That was different. It was half dead when we found it. I don't care. I still think we have to do something really strong this time. Let's ask him to let Percola's baby live and promise to be good for a whole month. Okay, but we better give up something so he'll know we really mean it this time. Give up what? We ain't got nothing. Nothing but the seed money. Two dollars. We could give that. Or you know what? We could give up the bicycle, bury the money, and, and plant the seeds. All of the money? Claudia, do you want to do it or not? Okay, I, I just thought, okay, 
We have to do it right now. We'll, we'll bury the money over by her house so we can't go back and dig it up. And we'll plant the seeds out back of our house so we can watch over them. And when they come up, we'll know everything is all right. All right? All right. Only let me sing this time. You say the magic words. How many times a minute you go look inside that old thing? I didn't look in a long time. You did too. So what? I can look if I want to. I didn't say you couldn't. I just don't know why you have to look every minute. They aren't going anywhere. I know it. I just like to look. You scared they might go away? Of course not. How can they go away? The others went away. They didn't go away. They changed. Go away. Change. What's the difference? A lot. Mr. Soaphead said they would last forever. Forever and ever. Amen? Yes, if you want to know. You don't have to be so smarty when you talk to me. I'm not being smarty. You started it. I just like to do something else besides watch you stare in that mirror. You're just jealous. I am not. You are. You wish you had them. Ha, what would I look like with blue eyes? Nothing much. If you're going to keep this up, I may as well go off by myself. No, don't go. What, what do you want to do? We could go outside and play, I guess. But it's too hot. You can take your old mirror, put it in your coat pocket, and you can look at yourself up and down the street. Boy, I never would have thought you'd be so jealous. Oh, come on. You are? Are what? Jealous. Okay, so I'm jealous. See, I told you. Are they really nice? Yes, very nice. Just very nice? Really, truly very nice? Really, truly bluey nice? Oh, God, you are crazy. I am not. I didn't mean it that way. Well, what did you mean? Come on, it's too hot in here. Wait a minute, I can't find my shoes. Here they are. Oh, thank you. Got your mirror? Yes, dearie. Let's go then. Ow, what's the matter? The sun is too bright. It hurts my eyes. Not mine. I don't even blink. Look, I can look right at the sun. Don't do that. Why not? It doesn't hurt. I don't even have to blink. Well, blink anyway. You make me feel funny staring at the sun like that. Feel funny how? I don't know. Yes, you do. Feel funny how? I told you I don't know. Why you look at me when you say that? You're looking drop-eyed like Mrs. Breedlove. Mrs. Breedlove looked drop-eyed at you? Yes, now she does. Ever since I got my blue eyes, she look away from me all the time. Do you suppose she's jealous too? Could be. They are pretty, you know. I know, he did a really good job. Everybody's jealous. Every time I look at somebody, they look off. Is that why nobody has told you how pretty they are? Sure it is. Can you imagine something like that happening to a person and nobody, but nobody saying anything about it? They all try to pretend they don't see them. Isn't that funny? I said, isn't that funny? Yes, you are the only one who tells me how pretty they are. Yes, you are a real friend. I'm sorry about picking on you before. I mean, saying you were jealous and all. That's all right. No, really, you are my very best friend. Why didn't I know you before? You didn't need me before. Didn't need you? I mean, you were so unhappy before. I guess you didn't notice me before. I guess you're right. And I was so lonely for friends. And you were right here, right before my eyes. No, honey, right after your eyes. What? What does Maureen think about your eyes? 
She doesn't say anything about them. Has she said anything to you about them? No, nothing. Do you like Maureen? Oh, she's all right for a half-white girl, that is. I know what you mean, but would you like her to be your friend? I mean, would you like to go around with her or anything? No, me neither, but she sure is popular. Who wants to be popular? Not me, me either, but you couldn't be popular anyway. You don't even go to school. You don't either. I know, but I used to. What did you stop for? They made me. Who made you? I don't know. After that first day at school when I had my blue eyes, well, the next day they had Mrs. Breedlove come out. Now I don't go anymore, but I don't care. You don't? No, I don't. They're just prejudiced, that's all. Yes, they, they sure are prejudiced. Just because I got blue eyes, bluer than theirs, they're prejudiced. That's right. They are bluer, aren't they? Oh, yes, much bluer. Bluer than Joanna's? Much bluer than Joanna's. And bluer than Michelena's? Much, much bluer than Michelena's. I thought so. Did Michelena say anything to you about my eyes? No, nothing. Did you say anything to her? No. How come? How come what? How come you don't talk to anybody? I talk to you. Besides me. I don't like anybody besides you. Where do you live? I told you once. What is your mother's name? Why are you so busy needling me? I just wondered. You don't talk to anybody. You don't go to school and nobody talks to you. How do you know nobody talks to me? They don't. When you're in the house with me, even Mrs. Breedlove doesn't say anything to you, ever. Sometimes I wonder if she even sees you. Why wouldn't she see me? I don't know. She almost walks right over you. Maybe she doesn't feel too good since Charlie's gone. Oh, yes, you must be right. She probably misses him. I don't know why she would. All he did was get drunk and beat her up. Well, you know how grown-ups are. Yes. No, how are they? Well, she probably loved him anyway. Him? Sure, why not? Anyway, if, if she didn't love him, she sure let him do it to her a lot. That's nothing. How do you know? I saw them all the time. She didn't like it. Then why'd she let him do it to her? Because he made her. How could somebody make you do something like that? Easy. Oh, yeah? How easy? Just like they just make you. That, that's all. I guess you're right. And Charlie could make anybody do anything. He could not. He made you, didn't he? Shut up. I was only teasing. Shut up. Okay, okay. He just tried, see? He didn't do anything, you hear me? I'm shutting up. You'd better. I don't like that kind of talk. I, I said I'm shutting up. You always talk so dirty. Who told you about that anyway? I forget. Sammy? No, you did. I did not. You did. You said he tried to do it when you were sleeping on the couch. See there? You don't even know what you're talking about. It was when I was washing dishes. Oh, yes, dishes. By myself, in the kitchen. Well, I'm glad you didn't let him. Yes. Did you? Did I what? Let him. Now who's crazy? I am, I guess. You sure are. Still. Well, go ahead. Still what? I wonder what it would be like. Horrible. Really? Yes, horrible. Then why didn't you tell Mrs. Breedlove? I did tell her. I didn't mean about the first time. I mean about the second time when you were sleeping on the couch. I wasn't sleeping. I was reading. You don't have to shout. You don't understand anything, do you? She didn't even believe me when I told her. 
So that's why you didn't tell her about the second time? She wouldn't have believed me then either. You're right. No use telling her when she wouldn't believe you. That's why I'm trying to get through your thick head. Okay, I, I understand now, just about. What do you mean, just about? You sure are mean today. You keep on saying mean and sneaky things. I, I thought you were my friend. I am, I am. Then leave me alone about Charlie. Okay. There was nothing more to say about him anyway. He, he's gone anyway. Yes, good riddance. Yes, good riddance. And Sammy's gone too. And Sammy's gone too. So there's no use talking about it. I mean, them. No, no use at all. It's all over now. Yes, and you don't have to be afraid of Charlie coming at you anymore. No, that was horrible, wasn't it? Yes. The second time too? Yes. Really? The second time too? Leave me alone. You better leave me alone. Can't you take a joke? I was only funning. I don't like to talk about dirty things. Me either. Let's talk about something else. What? What will we talk about? Why, your eyes. Oh, yes, my eyes, my blue eyes. Let me look again. See how pretty they are? Yes, they get prettier each time I look at them. They are the prettiest I've ever seen. Really? Oh, yes. Prettier than the sky? Oh, yes, much prettier than the sky. Prettier than Alice and Jerry's storybook eyes? Oh, yes, much prettier than Alice and Jerry's storybook eyes. And prettier than Joanna's? Oh, yes, and bluer, too. Bluer than Michelina's? Yes, are you sure? Of course I'm sure. You don't sound sure. Well, I am sure. Unless, unless what? Oh, nothing. I was just thinking about a lady I saw yesterday. Her eyes were blue, but no, not bluer than yours. Are you sure? Yes, I remember them now. Yours are bluer. I'm glad. Me too. I'd hate to think there was somebody around with bluer eyes than yours. I'm sure there isn't. Not around here anyway. But you don't know, do you? You haven't seen everybody, have you? No, I haven't. So there could be, couldn't there? Not hardly. But maybe, maybe you said around here. Nobody around here probably has bluer eyes. But what about someplace else? Even if my eyes are bluer than Joanna's and bluer than Michelina's and bluer than that lady you saw, suppose there is somebody way off somewhere with bluer eyes than mine. Don't be silly. There could be, couldn't there? Not hardly. But suppose, suppose a long way off, in Cincinnati, say, there is somebody whose eyes are bluer than mine. Suppose there are two people with bluer eyes. So what? You asked for blue eyes. You got blue eyes. He should have made them bluer. Who? Mr. Soaphead. What did you say? Did you say what color blue you wanted them? No, I forgot. Oh, well, look, look over here at that girl. Look at her eyes. Are they bluer than mine? No, I don't think so. Did you look real good? Yes. Here comes someone. Look at look at his. See if they're bluer. If you're really, you're, you're being silly. I'm not about to look at everybody's eyes. You have to. No, I don't. Please, if there is somebody with bluer eyes than mine, then maybe there is somebody with the bluest eyes, the bluest eyes in the whole world. That's just too bad, isn't it? Please help me look. No. But suppose my eyes aren't blue enough. Blue enough for what? Blue enough for, I don't know, blue enough for something. B blue enough for you. I'm going to play. I'm not going to play with you anymore. Oh, don't leave me. 
Yes, I am. Why, are you mad at me? Yes, because my eyes aren't blue enough? Because I don't have the bluest eyes? No, because you're acting silly. Don't go. Don't don't leave me. Will you come back if I get them? Get what? The bluest eyes. Will you come back then? Of course I will. I'm just going away for a little while. You promise? Sure. I'll be back right before your very eyes. So it was. A little black girl yearns for the blue eyes of a little white girl and the horror of the heart and the horror at the heart of her yearning is exceeded only by the evil of fulfillment. We saw her sometimes, Frida and I, after that baby came too soon, after that baby came too soon and died, after the gossip and the slow wagging of, of heads. She was so sad to see grown people looked away, children, those who were not frightened by her, laughed outright. The damage was done. She spent her days, her tendril sap green days, walking up and down, up and down, her legs jerking to the beat of a drummer so distant only she could hear. Elbows bent, hands on shoulders, she flailed her arms like a bird in an eternal, grotesquely futile effort to fly. Beating the air, a winged but grounded bird, intent on the blue void it could not reach, could not even see, but, with, but which filled the valleys of the mind. We tried to see her without looking at her, and never, never went near, not because she was absurd or repulsive, or because we were frightened, but because we had failed her. Our flowers never grew. I was convinced that Frida was right, that I had planted them too deeply. How could I have been so sloven? We, so we avoided Percola breed love forever, and the years folded up like pocket handkerchiefs. Sammy left town long ago. Charlie died in the workhouse. Mrs. Breedlove still does housework, housework, and Pecola is somewhere in that little brown house, and she in that little brown house she and her mother moved to on the edge of town, where you can see her even now once in a while. The bird-like gestures are worn away to mere picking and plucking her way between the tire rims and the sunflowers, between Coke bottles and milkweed, among all the waste and beauty of the world, which is what she herself was. All of our waste, which we dumped on her and which she absorbed, and all of our beauty, which was hers first and which she gave to us, all of us, all who, all who knew her, felt so wholesome after we cleansed ourselves on her. We were so beautiful when we stood astride her ugliness. Her simplicity decorated us. Her guilt sanctified us. Her pain made us glow with health. Her awkwardness made us think we had a sense of humor. Her, her inarticulateness made us believe we were eloquent. Her poverty kept us generous. Even her waking dreams we used to silence our own nightmares. And she led us and thereby deserved our contempt. We honed our egos on her, patted our characters with her frailty, and yawned in the fantasy of our strength. And fantasy it was, for we were not strong, only aggressive. We were not free, merely licensed, and we were not compassionate. We were polite, not good, but well-behaved. We courted death in order to call ourselves brave. We hid like thieves from life. We substituted good grammar for, in for intellect. We switched habits to simulate maturity. We arranged lies and called it truth, seeing in the new pattern of an old idea the revelation of the word. 
She, however, never stepped over into madness, a madness which protected her from us simply because it bored us in the end. Oh, some of us loved her. The Maginot line, and Charlie loved her. I'm sure he did. He, at any rate, was the one who loved her enough to touch her, envelop her, give something of himself to her. But his touch was fatal, and the something he gave her filled the matrix of the agony with death. Love is never any better than the lover. Wicked people love wickedly. Violent people love violently. Weak people love weakly. Stupid people love stupidly. But the love of a free man is never safe. There is no gift for the beloved. The love, the lover alone possesses his gift of love. The loved one is shorn, neutralized, frozen in the glare of her lover of her lover's inward eye. And now, when I see her searching the garbage, for what? The thing we assassinated? I talk about how I did not plant the seeds too deeply, how it was the fault of the earth, the land of our town. I even think now that the land of the entire country was hostile to marigolds that year. The soil is bad for certain kinds of flowers, certain seeds it will not nurture, certain fruit it will not bear. And when all kind and when the land kills of its own volition, we acquiesce and say the victim has no right to live. We are wrong, of course, but it doesn't matter. It's too late, at least on the edge of my town, among the garbage and the sunflowers of my town. It's much, much much too late. And that brings me to the conclusion of Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. Thank you so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. As always, I welcome your questions, your comments, and suggestions at carlareadstheclassics at gmail.com. And please feel free to interact with the Q&A section under the episode description. I ask you to also pardon my reading flubs. I'm not a reading professional or anything like that. I'm just a, a woman who enjoys reading. So I hope you were able to enjoy the reading despite the few reading flubs you heard. Thank you again for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time. <laughs>